Welcome to episode 303 of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, a literary podcast in four acts, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors still give voice to the written words. In act one, we check in with the host and we recommend books to read and we feature author Kathy Daniels and her novel Live Cult, a dark southern gothic adventure sourced in the rural mountains of western North Carolina. It's a story of an abused one-armed boy who steals a family skiff to follow his father's wistful dream of riding Carolina rivers all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. What one reviewer said was a unique alchemy of ingredients from a clockwork orange and huckleberry fin. In Act 2, we have Charlotte Litt's Two Minutes of Tips, and we address this writing question. How to draw inspiration from setting and how to imbue your writing with a strong sense of place. We also feature author John Basoff in his novel Beneath Cruel Waters, a psychological thriller where a man learns that his estranged mother has taken her own life and returns for the funeral, hoping to make peace with her memory and then things spin out of control, what one best-selling author calls an intense, gripping, exceptionally written mystery novel that everyone must read. In Act 3, we address this book marketing question. What is book talk anyway, and is it worth a try for authors? We feature author Suzanne Goodwin and her novel, Riceful Beach, a novel set at an iconic North Carolina beach that explores self-discovery, surfing, and finding true love. What one reviewer says is a beautiful coming-of-age story of young love that falls victim to the trials of life. And in Act 4, we hear from you, the listener. Uh, we have a uh, community blog post by author Paul Attaway titled, Writing a Sequel and maybe a series, and we offer our takeaways for this episode. I'm Landis Wade, and along with my co-host, uh, Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, we'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. Appreciate you listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. All right. Uh, hey, uh, Sarah. Hey, Hannah. How y'all doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fun to be here again with y'all, and uh, thank you for showing up, and, uh, you know, because if you didn't, we wouldn't have three of us. That's yeah. true. <laughs> it would just be you. <laughs> it would just Which be worked me. for 300 and episodes. It, exactly. So, so you could pull it off. Nothing too different for people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's got it's gotten much better and much and much different, so uh, we're excited about that. And I kind of want to add something here. To, we've gotten a lot of content on this uh, new show that we're putting out, as Sarah's putting together some great show notes that are more uh, in-depth and have timestamps. And Hannah's putting together a great newsletter that comes out every month with information and links. And uh, so, you know, it's a long, it's, these are long episodes, but there's a lot of content and we're, we're happy for you to jump around. We, that we're not, that's not going to hurt our feelings <laughs> a bit. Uh, and I'll say that, you know, I listen to some podcasts that are very lengthy, like the Joanna Penn podcast, and I, I might not get it all in one time, but I'll come back and listen to it the rest of another time. So we encourage you to do that. Um, I have a, just uh, to echo Sarah's announcement, uh, you know, that we engage with you, the listener, which you just heard, uh, you know, please go to our website to the contact page. There's a listener feedback there. Leave us a voice message or an email. And we're going to be doing something fun. Um, you know, I wrote this uh, blog post uh, 
Ann and Sarah about uh, procrastination. Y'all never procrastinated before, have you? Never, never. Literally the queen of that. <laughs> I don't function any other way. So <laughs> you've got to have a deadline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in our early September episode, we're going to be doing a, uh, one of our pieces is going to be on procrastination. I've written a blog post. You can see a, a preview of that uh, at the Wade Scripps uh, blog there on procrastination. I've titled it. I think it's uh, procrastination, a novelist, friend, or foe. But we're going to be talking about procrastination, all the ways that uh, writers <laughs> avoid <laughs> writing. <laughs> and uh, so we want you to go to the to the listener feedback page and click on that link uh, for SpeakPipe and leave us uh, 30 to 45 seconds of the best ways that you know how to procrastinate from your writing. And uh, we hope to feature you. Of course, you know, Hannah and Sarah, as I was thinking about this, um, it would be just like everybody to procrastinate and not do this. Yeah, right? we'll get a flood of them <laughs> at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we going to have to keep reminding them in each, exactly. in each episode? Yeah. <laughs> well, this will be some fun, free publicity for you um, to talk about what you do when you're not writing to not write or start that next project. Uh, and we want to hear your creativity there. All right, so what's up, host? What's up, Hannah? Not a whole lot. I'm getting pretty big over here, and it's very hot outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just had our baby shower this past weekend, actually, and it was um, here in Charleston. Well, there's a huge heat wave going through up north, you know, so it's like, but it's been very, I feel like the northerners are getting to experience what it's like 24-7 here in Charleston. Mm -hmm. So it's like the heat index was like 110 degrees and we were having our baby shower on Saturday. I mean, it was inside, but the air is so hot that everywhere you go here, they're like, the air is just kind of not helping <laughs> at all. <Yeah. laughs> but it was fun. We got very to see everybody. And, you know, it was the company that mattered. So kind of just doing that, getting ready for the for the uh, baby. So that's kind of my <laughs> life right now. <laughs> All right. That's great. Uh, what about you, Sarah? Um, trying to survive the heat, too. I'm somebody who I'm always cold. But even for me, it's it's too much right I'm now. Jealous of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I wish I was always cold. <laughs> this time of year, normally it's nice. But um, we, we've done a little bit of traveling locally. We went to uh, Yorktown and Williamsburg in Virginia, just doing oh, yeah. like a little bit of history tourism, um, which was great. But yeah, it was so hot. Um, <sighs> yeah. But I've been staying inside and writing some. I have a script that I'm working on. And last week, um, the producers gave me notes and then I sent it to the studio the next day. So just waiting to hear from them and then hopefully we'll get something together soon. We'll see. <laughs> Exciting. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on one of the social media platforms, you were at one of the battlefields. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We went to uh Cowpens battlefield also, which is South Carolina, um, and walked around there and it was beautiful, but again, very, very hot. <laughs> it's a hard time to be walking around out there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I think hot's the name of the game. Uh, well, for me, um, yesterday I had a fun, um, I, I attended and uh, answered questions at the Cozy Mystery Book Club in California. Um, uh, Karen Driskin, she had had me there, and uh, we had uh, women from all over the place, including England, who came in to talk about deadly declarations and asked me questions about uh, all about the writing and and uh, the history of the Mac deck, but also about how I named my character. So that was a fun Fun part of it too. Kind of um, neat. And, cool uh, question. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, and uh, I'm getting some new golf clubs after 22 years. I figured <laughs> it's about time. I need some old man clubs. You know, so. <laughs> uh, but I did. My son said, "Dad, you know, do you, you need to go get fitted for these things." And I said, "Okay." And he told me where to go. And he said, "They did great work." And I said, "All right, so that means that I'm going to be able to 
beats you now on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. He's going to do great work. They're not miracle workers. Oh, <laughs> dang. So, you don't, so, you so, want to get your so clubs he, from somebody who you're playing against because he might try to sabotage you. <laughs> I bet exactly. you taught him all he knows, uh, though. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the other big news is that uh, this next Saturday, we're going to Durham to celebrate Simon's oh, one-year birthday. And, uh, I can't believe and that. Then we're gonna, <laughs> and then he and he and Jordan and Janet and I are headed to the beach for a week. Uh, awesome. So I'll take a lot, take some books down there and read. So uh, yeah, that'll be fun. And speaking of reading, um, you know, we should uh, we should talk about uh, our book recommendations and share some from uh, from our collaborators here. But before I do, let me just mention a, a public service announcement about book clubs. Uh, my friend and listener David Dillard shared this information with me. The Charlotte McMurray Library Foundation is sponsoring a contest for book clubs where they can score points to win a table at this year's Verse and Vino event this fall so that you can go to their website. Um, we'll put this in the show notes. It's, I think it's foundation.cmlibrary.org and look for Book Club Madness. And um, it looks like it'd be fun. They're going <laughs> to... Uh, book clubs can score points for doing different things in the five weekly challenges. And so if you've got a book club out there and you want to participate, do something fun, uh, check out uh, what's going on with the CM Library and the Library Foundation. So uh, with that sort of introduction, uh, who wants to go first on the book recommendations? I will. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, right now, so I'm reading a lot of good stuff for the show, which has been a lot of fun. I feel like that's been such a huge highlight for me of starting to do this is just getting to read a lot more of the things that I love to read and adding things I wouldn't have added otherwise. So that's been really good. So a lot of that. Um, I started reading Even Cowgirls Get the Blues by Tom Robbins. This was a recommendation from my wacky brother-in-law, and it makes complete sense after I started reading it. Um, it's, it's about the plot's kind of funny. It's just a sort of a motley crew of characters. Um, you know, Sissy Hankshaw is the main character with huge thumbs. So it's, it's sort of a, a wacky, you, you start out and you're just like, okay, this is a beautiful person, she's, but she's got huge thumbs and she um, decides to become a hitchhiker. So it's kind of just about like that adventure and what that looks like, <laughs> which has been kind of funny. What, what is the, what, what's the huge thumb have to do Honestly, with Honestly, I don't even know. I'm kind of waiting. I'm not quite, I've, I've a little bit longer left to go and I can't wait to get on Reddit after <laughs> and read all of the like, it's like, how does this all tie together? But it's been a good laugh. So that's been really nice. Um, and I'm also reading a couple of parenting books. <laughs> so okay. yeah, crib sheet and, um, Expecting Better by Emily Oster. So that's been kind of cool. I feel like I've got a, a wide array of like 10 different things I'm reading <laughs> right now. So We're going to have to add a little segment to the I know, podcast, right? You know, <laughs> Hannah's, Hannah's baby corner tips. Honestly, yeah. I just have like some sounds of like rattles and babies <laughs> crying and I'll just come on and be like, so this is what you got to do to get, this, get it to be silent. <laughs> I think, you know, it is true that things have changed so much uh, mm-hmm. over the years. What we did would be considered reckless now, you know, and what, what our parents did before us without seatbelts. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> and there was a point in time where I remember people, you know, there was advice going around saying, oh yeah, I mean, smoke, if you're anxious, just smoke while you're pregnant. That's fine. It's like, have a little oh. cocktail, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Like yeah. it doesn't well, matter. Like mad men, mad men. Oh my yeah, God, exactly. for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, uh, what about great. you guys? Well, uh, Sarah, how, how um, about well, you Well, I have been, first of all, I want to read Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. That sounds like it would be a fun read. <laughs> I think you would like it. Yeah. I think you would like it. Anything recommend. weird and wacky <laughs> is right up my alley. Um, and the mm-hmm. book that I've been reading most recently is a little bit 
out there. It's called Gwendy's Button Box uh, by Stephen King and Richard Chismar. Um, it's a little bit of kind of like a dark modern fairy tale, I would say, about this girl who, when the story starts, I think she's about 12, um, and she gets this mysterious box which has all sorts of powers, and then as she gets older, it kind of develops. Um, this is actually the first time, shamefully enough, that I have read Stephen King. Um, but it's, really? yeah, but it, since it's co-written, I kind of feel like he probably didn't do most of the writing. So I still, I don't know if I can say that I've really read Stephen King yet. Um, but I did really enjoy it. It's a great story, really compelling. It's like a fun, fast, easy read. Um, so I've, I've enjoyed that. And like Hannah said, just reading a lot of books for the podcast too has been awesome. Um, we also have a recommendation I wanted to shout out from our Instagram. Um, someone left a comment, Allie Coker recommended the book woman of troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle Richardson. So, you know, anyone who wants to jump on our social media and drop book, book recommendations there, we're always looking for those and we'll share them on the show. I've got a couple to recommend as well. Um, I listened, uh, to Megan Miranda's uh, The Last of Vanish. She's a Charlotte-based, uh, best-selling, New York Times best-selling author, written a number of books. And uh, this is really a suspenseful book set in, a, I guess, a fictitious North Carolina town that backs up to the Appalachian Trail, and it's called Cutter's Pass. And people have been disappearing over the years, and nobody can explain why. And The Last to Disappear was about four months ago, and it's told through the point of view of a woman who's about 28 who's working at the inn, and she starts to discover clues, and then, you know, things start closing in on her. So kind of an interesting, suspenseful book. And by the way, Megan is going to be part of our podcast, uh, I believe, in late August. Uh, she's on tour right now with a new book. That's exciting. I, I heard her speak um, to the Charlotte Writers Club, I think, last year, earlier this year, and she was gave, like, really good, helpful information. So she's a great speaker. Right. She does uh, very interesting things with her structure. She even wrote one book in reverse. Wow. Really? Wow, that's yeah. wild. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So the other book is uh, one I'm going to use to talk about when we get to our writing talk today on settings, uh, and it's called Writing the Breakout Novel by Donald Moss. Uh, this book was uh, recommended to me by several authors who appeared on the podcast, uh, I believe it was episode 292, and... Uh, they're thriller writers. They work together. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a very interesting book. If you're, of course, there's all kind of books out there about how to write a novel. This one's, um, I think, interesting because it's taken from the standpoint of someone who's in the publishing industry for about 20 years, who's seen traditionally published authors uh, wonder why their books didn't turn into breakout novels. And so it's got all these little tips and tricks and things that you can do to try to make that happen. And then, of course, you still have to be struck by lightning for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> a little of both helps. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah a, little, a little bit of both helps. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. So let, let's hear what, um, you know, some recommendations from our uh, local collaborators here. We've got, uh, we've got, uh, first of all, let's start with uh, That's Novel Books. Uh, Alyssa Pressler, she collaborates with us on the Charlotte Readers Book Club that we do quarterly uh, here in Charlotte. Uh, so, Let's hear what she has to say about her book recommendations. Hi, everyone. My name is Alyssa Pressler, and I'm the owner of That's Novel Books, a used bookstore that's located in Camp North End in the retail collective Locay. I'm calling to give um, a couple of book recommendations. I've been reading a lot lately and wanted to share a couple of the things that I've really enjoyed. First and foremost, I uh, for anybody who is interested in fantasy or maybe getting into the fantasy genre, I highly recommend the Mistborn series. 
Um, I have been reading those all year and I'm currently in the middle of the final book in the trilogy and it is so good. Absolutely love it. Highly recommend it. Um, For anybody who's looking for more of a psychological thriller, one of the books that I most recently read along those lines was um, Never Saw Me Coming by Vera Kurian. Um, Very cool book told from the viewpoint of a psychopath and sociopath. Really enjoyed that one. And then for anybody looking for something that will kind of tug on your heartstrings, um, has a strong female lead, and is an interesting historical fiction, I just finished The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. It was a solid read, by far, um, you know, interesting and captivating. I personally listened to it on audiobook and really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the time. All right. And thanks to Alyssa for that contribution. Have y'all read those books? I read them, but I think I could be wrong, but I think the Mistborn series is Brandon Sanderson, right? And I've been curious to check out his work because he's, um, if he's the person I'm thinking of, he had like the biggest Kickstarter of all time. He raised, I think, a million dollars or more on Kickstarter for a book series that he's launching. So he's very, very popular. Wow. Yeah. He's, he's got an interesting career for sure. That's awesome. I read The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. I, I love her. She's just, she reminds me of like, I don't know, kind of more of the, it's like Laura Ingalls Wilder, but like more intense. <laughs> I don't know the way she writes, but it was really good. It was um, kind of a, kind of sad, but it was a good book. All right. Well, let's see what uh, Mark West with Storage Charlotte blog has to uh, suggest today. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. Story Charlotte celebrates the community of readers and writers in Charlotte, and today I want to recommend a book by a Charlotte writer, a man named Dr. Andrew Hartley. Andrew Hartley has written many fantasy books and thrillers and other forms of genre fiction, but Andrew is also a Shakespeare scholar. In his most recent book, he combines these two sides of himself. The book is called Burning Shakespeare just came out, and it's a fun fantasy book involving time travel. What happens in this book is that an American businessman who has a peculiar dislike of Shakespeare decides he's going to travel back in time, makes a deal with the devil to be able to do this, to stop Shakespeare in his tracks before Shakespeare ever has a chance to write his great plays. So um, that's his goal. That's the businessman's goal. But he is challenged by three other contemporary Americans who travel back in time to stop this businessman from his mission. It's a fun book involving time travel. It has lots of references to Shakespeare. But even if you're not a Shakespeare aficionado, you can still enjoy the story. It's lighthearted, but it also celebrates Uh, the value and importance of Shakespeare. If you are interested in meeting Andrew Hartley and talking about this book, he will be participating in an in-person event at Park Road Books on Sunday, August 7th at 2 p.m. And you can, of course, get your book signed there if you so choose to. I highly recommend Burning Shakespeare. It's a fun book, and I think you'll enjoy reading it. Thank you. What do you that think? sounds like a fun read. I mean, there are so many books yeah. that are either like about Shakespeare or inspired by Shakespeare in some way, but that's a, a take on it that I haven't heard before. Yeah, a good title. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. 
Yeah, I thought the same thing. It'd be fun, you know, combining time travel. And if you if you if you never understood or didn't appreciate sitting mm-hmm. in high school Shakespeare classes, you could be, you know, you could help the businessman <laughs> with his <laughs> with, yeah. with his mission. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do this uh, quick message, and then we're going to jump into our first uh, author feature. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, we got our first author feature here, and uh, Sarah, you're you did this interview, so why don't you tell us a little bit about our uh, featured author and uh, before? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited to bring her to the show. Um, her name is R. Kathy Daniels, and this is her first book, Live Caught, which we're talking about. Um, she grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, graduated from UNC. Um, so another fellow Tar Heel, which I love. We're gonna have to start doing like a a running tally on the show of how many yeah. authors from different <laughs> schools we have. <laughs> Yes. We might look, we might lose some, some people though. We might lose. Well, they don't need to listen then, or, honestly. If you're not a Tar Heel, just like <laughs> go away. Find another podcast. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, they do have a lot of gra- they do have a lot of graduates, so maybe yeah, that'll help yeah. with you know. Um, so she uh, got a master's degree in education there. Um, she taught high school math in East Tennessee and then became an award-winning newspaper reporter for the Oak Ridger, where she covered education as well as science coming out of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Um, She's a 2016 graduate of the Stanford University Novel Writing Program. She won first prize in the 2018 Retreat West First Chapter Competition, and she was a semifinalist in the 2020 University of New Orleans Press Novel Contest. Her short story, Boy in Ways, was a semifinalist in the North Carolina Writers Network 2021 Doris Betts Fiction Prize. And when she isn't writing, Kathy can be found at CrossFit, in her garden, hiking, or shooting hoops with her grandkids. Um, this is her first novel, Live Caught. It's a dark Southern Gothic adventure sourced in the rural mountains of Western North Carolina. It talks about the story of an abused one-armed boy, Lenny, who is beset by deep family mental instability. When his own actions begin to mirror the cruelty of his older brothers, and he suspects he's not immune to the toxic chemistry gripping his home, he steals the family's gift to follow his father's wistful dream of riding the Carolina rivers all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. When he's waylaid by an elderly, profanity-slinging priest, who's a great character, by the way, <laughs> um, who is operating an illegal drug trade out of the local parish, he begins plotting yet another escape. Eventually, Lenny returns to the family farm to settle scores, but he has to determine whether the haven offered up by his family is any safer than the demons chasing him. And um, Kathy shared some exciting news that Live Caught was recently on the small press distribution bestseller list for April to June, so that's awesome. And just a little bit of um, some praise for the book. Joshua Moore, author of Model Citizen in Damascus, says that Daniel's language in this book is both mesmerizing and terrifying, a masterclass in extracting every drop of drama. Its unique alchemy has ingredients from a clockwork orange and huckleberry fin. And whatever that oddball combo makes you imagine, this book is better. And I certainly enjoyed it. So I'm happy to welcome her to the show. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's play the interview. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Um, congratulations on your first novel. It's a huge achievement. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, we're, we're super glad to have you on here, and I loved reading your book. Um, I was really interested in, to read in one of your interviews that it was actually a writing prompt, it sounds like, that was the genesis <laughs> of this novel. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what the prompt was and how you used it? Sure. Yeah, the prompt was not very creative, but it worked for me. Uh, it was basically jot down as fast as you can three opening sentences to your novel, pick the one you like, then write a paragraph. If you still like it, write a page. If you still like it, write a chapter, write a novel. 
And that's pretty much what happened. Um, I finished 250 pages of a first draft and then discarded the sentence. But the sentence served me so well. It put me in the right frame of mind. Um, it was kind of a moody sentence and a setting, setting sentence. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the characters just sort of grew out of that mountain soil. I love that. And that's fascinating, too, just in terms of how revision works, that the sentence that started the whole thing didn't actually make it into the final novel. <laughs> yeah, it so. was. It was. And that sentence also was turned out to be pretty um, metaphorical or symbolic um, because the sentence was a wounded coyote uh, circling back toward the danger of the farm. It had been shot at the farm and it circled back. And uh, the same sort of thing happens to my main character. He um, runs away and then in the second part of the book circles back home. So I, I did think that was my subconscious, maybe just working there and helping me out a little bit. Yeah, it's almost like a little microcosm of the plot of the book in that sentence. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Um, do you use writing prompts often in your work? Just to <laughs> never, never used a writing prompt. I had um, been accepted into the juried program at Stanford to, uh, to study for two years on how to write a novel. And so I needed a novel to write. So I just opened a prompt book and tried it out and it worked. I don't know why I haven't been back to that and try another prompt, mm -hmm. but um, it's not a strategy that is that I feel like suits me very well. Although although it gave me a book, so I don't, got, I'm not yeah, really sure why it. I'm not doing that. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so as soon as I opened this book, I saw the epigraph at the beginning. You have a quote from a Mike Cross song. I knew I wanted to ask you about it. Um, the song is flying out on the highway, and the quote that you have says, don't look, for, don't look for me no more. I won't be coming back unless I left some things behind that I forgot to pack. Um, and Mike Cross, for anyone who isn't familiar, is a wonderful North Carolina singer-songwriter. He's very entertaining and funny. Uh, my parents are big fans of him, and I remember going to a Mike Cross show when I was a kid. Oh, really? So was, That's so awesome. Yeah, it was, it was great to see his name there. Um, are you a fan of his music, and how did you choose that quote? Oh, my goodness, yes. When, when I was in Chapel Hill, my husband and I went to every concert we could get to and any bar that he was playing. My sister-in-law uh, went to Chapel Hill as well, and she would go mm -hmm. and uh, dance uh, for Mike Cross and do this kind of square dancing kind of dances with a bunch of oh, people. And we had a lot of fond memories. I had almost all of his CDs as we had back then. Mm -hmm. And um, it was real exciting uh, when I wanted to use that lyric. I contacted him and he uh, had not been in the greatest of health, but he was so generous and, and responded so nicely. And I got to talk to his wife a little bit and hear a little bit about Chapel Hill, where I've not been back in a long time. Mm -hmm. So that was just a fun part. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I really enjoyed using his lyric. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's, that's great that you got to reach out to him personally, too, about it. I'm sure he appreciated knowing that his work was being, you know, honored in that way. Yeah, he seemed pretty happy about it. So I was, too. Um, and speaking of music, one thing that struck me about your writing, too, is just the musicality of it. Um, I think the sounds of it are really rich and, and interesting to read, even on the page. I mean, even just I pulled out like the first couple lines of the book. A man's legs appear not three feet from Lenny's face. Slick, flat fish hang vertically one after the other against one leg. 
their green bronze scales painted in downward streaks of blood from mouths gaffed by a rusted stringer. Like the sounds are just so kind of complicated and thorny and interesting there. Is that something that you think about consciously when you're writing? Do you read your work out loud to yourself or how do you think about sort of the music of the words? Yeah, I do read it out loud uh, multiple, multiple, multiple times. Um, but I think um, I try not to start my writing with any kind of theme in mind or any kind of premise. Um, I try to write from my heart and try to write from my subconscious and let the story just sort of evolve. Uh, I think I would lose lyricism if I started with theme. You know, if I started, well, the theme of this is going to be how willing are you to take a risk to get yourself out of dire straits and how can you manage the consequences of that risk, whether you take a risk by staying in a bad situation or take a risk getting out of a situation. You still have that theme. Uh, what are the consequences and how do I manage it? But if I started with that, I don't think I could get to a story. I don't think the mu- musicality would be there. Um, so I just try to write what's coming in out of my head, putting it on the page. Don't look at it for a long time. And then, uh, come back to it much later and read it out loud, revise. And then at the end of one draft or two, start looking for those themes that have come out of my subconscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a layered process. It's always interesting to hear different writers talk about kind of what comes first and what comes next. And, you know, you, you never see the whole picture all at once. You have to kind of chip away at it. And then it's like, oh, I guess this is what I was saying all along. That's exactly right. And to, to start it, this book I started with, as I mentioned, setting and mood. Uh, the book I'm working on now, I had this voice in my head and just am riding that voice as far as it'll take me, uh, but still not thinking about themes. So I really mm-hmm. admire people who can start that way uh, with a premise and keep going, but uh, it's not in me. Yeah, I understand it too. <laughs> um, so you mentioned setting, and that's another thing that we actually are going to be talking about some on the podcast. Um, and this book has such a strong sense of place. It's set in North Carolina. It starts off actually around Charlotte and Lake, Lake Norman, that area. Um, how did you decide where to set this book? I know obviously you've spent a lot of time in North Carolina, but how did you pick out the setting and think about how to Yeah, it? well, the mountains are a big part of my life. My mom, I uh, thank her in the acknowledgments for making the mountains a, an actual character in my own life. Um, she was a mathematician, but she was also an artist. She did watercolor, and we always joked that she could not paint a picture without the mountains in the background. If she mm-hmm. were to paint a picture of the Atlantic Ocean, she would have to put a mountain there. And I feel like in my writing, same way, I would have to have mountains in the book. Um, but when I was contemplating uh, where to go with this book, um, I remembered that my own dad, when I was 11, had bought me a rowboat. And uh, I rode in the rivers of of the mountains, and I rode in the lakes. And he always talked about, wouldn't it be fun to paddle from the mountains of North Carolina all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, which is a path that Lenny tries to take. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of autobiographical. But when I looked at that map, I saw that Lake James and Lake Norman, the Watery Dam, were right in that passageway. And I thought, oh, so this would be a good place for Lenny to get waylaid 
on his journey mm-hmm. uh, in Lake Norman. And I had visited there and loved Lake Norman, loved the Charlotte area. I have uh, friends and family there. Um, and I thought, well, back in the 70s, what did that look like? So I went back and looked at the maps, and it's much more rural, of course. And so I just felt like that'd be a great place to have Lenny land. Yeah, I love that. And that, that sense of it being a kind of familiar lived-in setting, I think, comes through strongly. The fact that there's a family tie there for you. You can feel like it, it feels like a real place, even if maybe you weren't actually in those places at that time in history. Yeah, yeah. And again, I had family there. and We visited Charlotte. So I feel like I, I had some ties there and still have ties there and very fond of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a few more questions. But first, I'd like to ask you to read us a little bit from the book, if you don't mind. Um, and I believe you have a scene picked out from around the middle of the book. Is that right? Sure. Yes. I thought I would read. Uh, the book is in two parts. Uh, the first part, when he is 14 and is trying to escape an abusive situation uh, from his older brother, Jude, who has abused him most of his young life. Um, and being 14, he chooses the most adventurous way possible to run away from home. He steals a skiff and tries to paddle from the mountains of North Carolina all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, he's waylaid in Lake Norman. And that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book, Lenny having escaped and gotten away from home for 10 years, uh, never come back, but he has gotten word at age 24 of his mom's untimely death. And of course he suspects Jude uh, as having had a hand in that death. So he's coming back to seek revenge. And with him, he's carrying Romy, who is an 11-year-old girl who's had hard times herself, and he kind of looks at himself as her protector. So he's bringing Romy with him back to the family farm, and that's where I'm going to read from. So here we are, book two, chapter one. Three brothers, just goddamn kids, goddamn boys up on a barn's roof. One gets shoved off the edge, loses his arm. What did the other two lose or gain? And for God's sake, why would the one-armed brother, supposedly now a man, drive a little girl, Romy, directly back into the land of his brothers, rumbling along in his pickup truck, tracking back into land he'd sworn he'd never set foot on again, never in the history of ever? The very act was to compromise the idea of Romy the one, the only pure thing in his life. Where are we going, Lens? Romy's frizzy head startles out of her 11-year-old dreams, then droops back against the truck's cold, fogged window. Outside, the gloomy November afternoon and its gloomy, decaying landscape passes them way too rapidly in the opposite direction. He's plucked her out of danger on the city streets, only to toss her right back into danger on the farm. Catch and release. Hadn't she been through enough? Romy, riding away from her demons directly into his. Why? His mother and his brother out riding horses. Goddamn grown-ups. His mother doesn't make it back. So a memorial service five days from now. Was it an accident? Is anything an accident when his brother Jude is the witness? Jude had been on the barn roof when Lenny lost his arm. Was Jude saddled up beside his mother when she lost her life? From what he's heard, Jude swears not. Jude swears that by then they had separated on the trail. Lenny could hope Jude is a changed man. Lenny could hope Jude is telling the truth. Yep, he could. 
but he's so sick of false hopes. Where has it ever gotten him? Also, there's his mom dream looping back at him, his mom dream resurrected from childhood, rolling right back up to sting his adult eyes, looping, looping. His mother rouses herself from her stupor or from whatever it was that seemed to veil her from seeing her kids clearly, her husband clearly. Whatever, she wakens finally. She rises, long curls shimmering, her head clear finally, her voice clear finally, strong, on a mission, calling, calling for a reckoning, a God-trembling, devil-quaking reckoning. That's what reels him back to the farm. His childhood mom dream reels him back into what he had left for good 10 years ago. Had her death been an accident, or had she called Jude out so late in the game? Hell, inside her own erratic, twisty thought garden, it would not have been too late, not for her, and certainly not for Lenny. Had she finally, finally challenged her el eldest son, Jude? Had she given Terror his name? Yep, when word came of the accident, he'd taken just enough time to pack Romy's bag and nab her from the school bus line. He would have done that eventually anyway. Yes, eventually he would have snatched Romy from her own nightmares. His mom's unexplained death only escalated that timeline. Romy had been in need of rescue for as long as he'd known her. So he's rescuing her. Most folks would call it kidnapping. But one goddamn kid up on a ledge, what are you going to do? Just leave her teetering? Oh, I love that. Thank you. Uh, Lenny is such a complex character. It's just wonderful to kind of hear the layers of his thoughts. Thank you. Um, I also, I read that you had this wonderful guest post on Sarah Stone's blog. And one of the things you talked about in there was the idea of set pieces from sports and kind of how you apply that to your writing. Can you talk about that idea a little bit? Sure, sure. Yes. Um, yeah, I grew up playing sports and uh, there's just no better feeling uh, than to have practiced and practice a set piece such as a corner kick in soccer, um, you know, the long ball in football, whatever it might be, uh, tip off in basketball, whatever the, the set piece would be, uh, to feel that go right and to have practiced it so hard so that all the pieces are in the right position. And I started thinking about that in terms of my writing when I was revising. Um, I was when I revised this book for Black Lawrence, I signed the contract first. And then uh, Diane Goddell, uh, who heads up Black Lawrence, um, told me, well, now you have three months to revise. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of surprised by that. Uh, I didn't think it would take me three months, but it took me every bit of three months, and I took out 7,000 words. Wow. I uh, really, really chopped it pretty good. Um, but I started thinking, how can I finish this up? What would be uh, a strategy? And I thought, okay, set pieces. If, if you get your set pieces right in sports, uh, fans will come back for more, even if you lose the game. I thought, mm -hmm. okay, so what are my set pieces here in, in Live Caught? And some of those were Every single interaction, they're not many, but they're really critical between Romy and Lenny. Those were very important. The priest um, and his sermons, I felt like, like were set pieces that need to go right. And then the crimes that Lenny commits, I felt like were set pieces. I thought, okay, I can wrap up this, this revision if I can just get those set pieces how I want them. And that kind of 
help me finish up that process and say, mm -hmm. okay, the novel's ready. Uh, I think I've got set pieces right. I feel like it's in pretty good shape. You know, here it is, Black Lawrence Press. And so that's how I spent those three months. Nice. I'm going to remember that as I'm going through actually some revisions on a project now. Okay. <laughs> Keep your priorities straight for revision. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to be able to narrow that down to some mm -hmm. things that you can be successful with. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. Um, so we're going to wrap up soon. But before I let you go, any hints or topics that you're working on next? Any new projects coming up? Well, I am working on my, my second novel, and I have a few other projects, but I think the main thing I'm working on is trying to improve. Uh, I've spent a lot of time reading uh, Louis Erdrich and Richard Rousseau and Jasmine Ward, and over the past year, um, Sarah Stone, Joshua Moore, and they all tend to um, dive deeper into their characters. I feel like sometimes I'm uh, just enough writer. I write just enough to keep the reader turning the pages, but I would like to uh, dive a little bit deeper into my character's hearts. And so that's what I, that's my aim for the next year. Oh, great. And those are some great author recommendations as well. On there. Yes. I love all of them. Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for being here and for your beautiful book. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time you're taking to uh, interview me today. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Mears podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, welcome to Act Two of uh, Charlotte's Podcast Beyond Three Hundred. Uh, we've got uh, we're going to be doing some uh, writing talk now, and before we uh, jump into our topic for today, which uh, is really interesting, uh, we've got our Charlotte Lit Two Minute Tip. We're going to play that, and then uh, we'll talk about that first. So here we go. Hi, I'm Paul Rialli, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two minute writing tip. Show, Don't Tell, is perhaps the most famous or infamous instruction for writers. I kind of want to give this rule a pat on its head. It means well, it really does. It's just not correct. The truth is, writers must show and tell. To show is to render the action live on the page. When you show, the reader is present as a witness right there with your characters. Think cinematic. Telling, or exposition, takes a couple of different forms. The first is called narrative summary. This is when you compress time by providing a summary of events or facts or backstory, something that doesn't need to be shown. The train ride took three hours is narrative summary. Another form of telling is to describe something that can't be seen, such as thoughts. When we're in a live scene showing, we also need telling. Here's why. We don't read just to see what happens. We read to see how characters experience what happens. She was not used to seeing her father nervous is telling in the midst of showing. The balance of showing and telling varies by genre. 
For instance, literary fiction and memoir will have more exposition than thrillers and mysteries. This balance also varies widely inside a single book, because this is how writers control pacing. Showing moves the story forward in real time. Telling is time travel. It lets us skip over the dull bits, flash back to an earlier time, or stop time entirely while we climb inside a character's head. The bottom line is, show what wants to be experienced live, tell what must be told but either can't be shown or doesn't need to be shown with full scene detail. Now, here's your action step. Open a novel or memoir and read a passage. Use a pencil to underline any telling while leaving plain what's being shown. See how it goes back and forth? Repeat with another scene or two. Then, apply what you've learned into your own work. All right, welcome to Act 2 of uh, Charlotte's Podcast Beyond 300. Uh, We've got... uh, we're going to be doing some uh, writing talk now, and before we uh, jump into our topic for today, which uh, is really interesting, uh, we've got our Charlotte Lit two-minute tip. We're going to play that, and then uh, we'll talk about that first. So here we go. Hi, I'm Paul Rialli, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip. Show, Don't Tell is perhaps the most famous or infamous instruction for writers. I kind of want to give this rule a pat on its head. It means well, it really does. It's just not correct. The truth is, writers must show and tell. To show is to render the action live on the page. When you show, the reader is present as a witness, right there with your characters. Think cinematic. Telling, or exposition, takes a couple of different forms. The first is called narrative summary. This is when you compress time by providing a summary of events or facts or backstory, something that doesn't need to be shown. The train ride took three hours is narrative summary. Another form of telling is to describe something that can't be seen, such as thoughts. When we're in a live scene, showing, we also need telling. Here's why. We don't read just to see what happens. We read to see how characters experience what happens. She was not used to seeing her father nervous, is telling in the midst of showing. The balance of showing and telling varies by genre. For instance, literary fiction and memoir will have more exposition than thrillers and mysteries. This balance also varies widely inside a single book, because this is how writers control pacing. Showing moves the story forward in real time. Telling is time travel. It lets us skip over the dull bits, flash back to an earlier time, or stop time entirely while we climb inside a character's head. The bottom line is, show what wants to be experienced live, tell what must be told but either can't be shown or doesn't need to be shown with full scene detail. Now, here's your action step. Open a novel or memoir and read a passage. Use a pencil to underline any telling while leaving plain what's being shown. See how it goes back and forth? Repeat with another scene or two. Then apply what you've learned into your own work. Find this tip and more at charlottelit.org slash tips. All right. Reactions, thoughts? 
That was great. I mean, I think as writers, we're told so often, as, as Paul mentioned, you're just supposed to show, not tell. And people kind of leave it at that. But to give that nuance of like, no, actually, sometimes you should tell. And here's kind of what the difference is and how you should decide when you're using one for the one versus the other, I think is really helpful. Um, especially like for me with screenwriting and fiction, since I do a little bit of both, it's a very different sort of balance of like how you show versus tell. I in bet, one medium. Yeah. yeah. So that's something that I've actually been getting more used to as I've gotten used to writing fiction is like, no, you can tell sometimes <laughs> it's okay, but you <laughs> just have to do it for the right purposes and in the right ways. Um, so he gave some really good tips about that. Yeah. I think this is very a helpful tip uh, for a couple of reasons. And that is, you know, writing rules are made to be broken. And there is that thing out there about, uh, you know, show don't tell and yet you couldn't write a book yeah. if you followed mm -hmm. that advice. I mean, there's, you know, you, it, it would just be an awkward combination of words if you did that. Um, I kind of like the idea that it's show and tell, kind of like you go back to, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> kindergarten and, uh, you know, you're telling a story, you're having fun with it, you're showing and telling. But I do think this is where sometimes if editors are, are, are you know, stick too tightly to rules, uh, whether it be the exposition or in the dialogue, and they say, you know, show me more, talk, you know, give me more dialogue here, wh whatever the case may be. Um, there are times when you need to, you know, you need to deal with pacing and telling can help you increase that pace a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, because not every scene has to be filled with dialogue unless you're writing a screenplay, of course, <laughs> then it's, it's got to be. But sometimes you need to move the action along to get to the dialogue that matters. Mm -hmm. Those are my thoughts. Anyway, I think so. it's kind of difficult, too, to not tell when you're literally writing with words. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I think, yeah. I guess, too, when it comes down to when I'm reading something, and I actually talk with um, John Bassoff about this in our interview, just how it's it's kind of an interesting concept of, like you don't really want to describe everything. So it's not like you can just write a book full of description and kind of um, this is the kind of character this person is. You have to kind of show it through their actions, like experience the scenes with them or their their life with them and stuff like that. But it's, it's also kind of like you can't, you have to kind of give some backstory, some description in some places, or it doesn't really make sense in a book, mm -hmm. which for, for you, Sarah, I can imagine how it's kind of interesting going back and forth between like, because, you know, if you're screenwriting, it's all going to be seen yeah. on screen. So exactly. <laughs> it's like finding that medium a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very helpful tip from Paul Rialli, co-founder of Charlotte Lit. Uh, check them out. Uh, we'll have, you know, links in the show notes and, uh, to them and they're on the website as well as one of our writing friends so um, alright we're going to dive into the topic now for today how to draw inspiration from setting and how to imbue that's, that's a nice word how to imbue can say that real fast how to imbue your I writing I had to google with what strong. that meant <laughs> 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 I was like, it's a nice literary word Sarah is our literary word Sarah writes these little pieces here so maybe we should have Sarah re okay Sarah you read oh, the uh, topic of the question here pull it up here <laughs> How to draw inspiration from setting and how to imbue your writing with a strong sense of place. <laughs> it goes very See, it well with your voice, too. <laughs> <It's like> <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, setting. Um, and I thought before we started, um, maybe we'd talk about books that jumped to mind uh, for us individually that maybe the... Uh, settings uh, stand mm -hmm. out and I'll, I'll, I'll give a few first and then y'all can 
jump in as well because I'm surprising you a little bit with this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think of one of my favorite books, Lonesome Dove, um, because it's a cattle drive that starts in South Texas and ends up in Montana and it crosses the, the great American West. And so setting is very much a part of the character from the Mexican border all the way to the lush and green pastures of Montana. Um, you just sort of, you know, it becomes part of the story. And while, we're on, while I'm on Westerns, any Louis L'Amour book is going to put you, you know, on a cattle drive or a desolate water-starved place, you know, or a windswept plain somewhere. Um, and, you know, from when he's writing, you find out about not only the land, but setting also involves the clothes, the weapons, the towns, the trails, the people. You know, what's this place like? Um, is it a wide-open space? Is it a tight space? Um and I think of the classic, uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you know, because the river is very much a, a character, you know, in the book, and setting is, is very important. And even To Kill a Mockingbird, the small town um, and the courtroom scenes, you know, where the whites uh, on the first floor and the uh, and, and black people are relegated to the gallery above, and then there's injustice throughout. You can sort of feel the tension in the setting itself. On the set. So those are a couple of mine. I don't know if any jump to y'all in terms of books you've read or liked that uh, maybe where the setting actually has as important a part of the story as the plot and the characters do. I feel like uh, The Overstory by Richard Powers is the one that kind of comes to my brain. I don't know if you guys have read that, um, but it's, it's a really incredible book. It's a long one, but overall it's kind of about how, you know, like – our environment is so important <laughs> and like we don't take care of it. Um, and they tell it's, you know, it's just the story overall. It's, it's about, there's like multiple different parts, characters. Um, we kind of learn all these different stories about different people who are tied to that cause who decide like, okay, well I love like the trees are a character basically. Like, why don't we take care of our trees? They literally filter our air. They uh, provide for us and we just don't take care of them. And the whole book kind of centers around, around that and the environment around us and just like different parts of the United States that you live in where people just aren't really taking care of their surroundings. Um, so that's one that kind of jumps out to me. And I would say too, just going back to the recommendation for Kristen Hanna, um, the four winds, all of her books are super, super focused on the set. Like the setting has a huge part in each book. Like she has, um, the great alone, which is out in Alaska. And that's, totally like a crazy location like the weather is a character basically you know it's just it's super different um so those are kind of the ones that stand out to me and I love being sucked into a location or just kind of like being able to smell the food that's something I love with books if you're like describing uh like the smell of bacon in the, in the kitchen I'm like this is my story I love this <laughs> like so um <laughs> I, I think you gave me feedback when you were reading one of the earlier drafts yeah of my I book. did tell me <laughs> You said, t tell me more about what they're oh, eating. I, love I know, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> you want to get hungry while you're yeah. eating. Yeah. So. <laughs> maybe maybe I need to come up with a, a menu for the indie retirement. You should. That would be really that. cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great promotional yeah. idea. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? What comes to your mind? Um, well, if you want a book that is good, both at describing setting and food, <laughs> Where the Crawdads Sing is great for that. Um, obviously, for us being in North Carolina, it's nice to have a book that's set in North Carolina and that describes the setting really beautifully and kind of the nature um, in the sort of coastal North Carolina habitat. Um, and she also gives really great descriptions of what they're eating. And I, I remember when I was reading the book, I was living in England and they eat all this like, you know, down home 
North yeah. Carolina food. And I was so homesick. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want like that type of biscuit, not the cookie type of biscuit. <laughs> the English tea biscuit. Um, so that one is good for setting. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I love um, books that have fantastical settings too. Sometimes those are the ones that are most memorable to me, like, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter, like where it creates this world that you know is not real, but it feels so real because it's described in a way that feels very detailed and you can just kind of imagine yourself there when you're reading it. Yeah. So I love, um, I love those sorts of fantastical settings. Also, I think setting is place, but it's also time. So sometimes if a book can transport you to another time, like the great Gatsby, you know, really encapsulates a certain time and place really strongly so much so that I think when we think about our image of that time period, so much of it is based on the great Gatsby these days. Um, so yeah, those are books that really kind of transport me when I read them. Yeah, that's a great point. Historical fiction, you know, has a way of taking you back and letting you experience, um, you know, what was happening then. Uh, I want to play a little clip here from a very early uh, Patreon episode we had with George Hovis. Um, George Hovis uh, wrote The Skin Artist, set in Charlotte. It deals with underbelly. He's been on the podcast several times, a uh, friend of the podcast. Uh, but, but we did a little Patreon episode on setting, and I thought he had some really uh, interesting points to share and he's got a little quick reading here so um, I'm going to play that and then we'll come back and talk about the craft of uh, setting. One of the jobs of a fiction writer is to embody the story in a place. You don't want these disembodied voices talking to each other. The reader wants to inhabit a world. Uh, so, you know, that pencil sharpeners are on the wall. You've got two characters talking and you need them to do something. Well, one of those characters can go over and sharpen a pencil right. and threaten yeah. the other one with it. <laughs> there you go. We got a novel starting already. Right. Uh, well, you know, and you're going to have a short reading to, as an illustration here, but you used in the skin artist, uh, Charlotte during a period of time. And, and we talked about this a little bit on the show that's going to come out in season six about how I was thrown off. Initially, because you referred to the big bank in town uh, as Nations Bank, and I knew, well, gosh, it's not Nations Bank. That's Bank of America. Yeah. And yet I read further, and I saw the double door, and I saw other sites that are now gone, disappeared, bulldozed. Yeah. And I thought, oh, it's a different time period. Yeah, yeah. it's back in the 90s, yeah. the boom era, or what yeah. for me is that first real yeah. explosive period of growth in Charlotte. So tell us what you're about to read and how it illustrates the point you were just making. Um, so this is in the point of view of the book's protagonist, Bill Becker, whose life is coming totally unwound. His wife has kicked him out. He's about to lose his corporate job or I think he has lost it at, by this point. He falls in love with this heavily tattooed woman. He starts to acquire tattoos himself. And this passage comes from a low point in the book where he's trying to get his bearings, and he drives down or drives to uptown Charlotte and walks to that intersection of trade and Tryon and looks up at that massive structure, which as you pointed out in the 90s, was the Nations Bank Tower. After a short drive to the parking garage and a two-block stroll, he found himself at the base of the tower. In contrast to the airiness of nearby glass and steel skyscrapers, the Nations Bank building looked solid, built of stone, and not just veneer. Sixty stories, he stood and counted. He stood on the sidewalk and read the bronze plaque giving the building's vital stats. 
Every day of the year, the building consumed nearly 300,000 kilowatt hours of electricity. The people rushed by him on the sidewalk, oblivious to the monolith rising above them. For a better view, he backed through pedestrian traffic to the edge of the sidewalk, his back against the roar, standing within the flowing river of exhaust. Sixty stories up there, the red, white, and blue flapped in the breeze. He leaned against the stinking breeze of speeding, honking cars and looked up, willing himself to forget his problems. So, so George, I've been in uptown Charlotte <laughs> practicing law for many years, and I've looked up, at, not only as they built it, but as I walk by it every day, and I can just see it just towers into the sky, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, you, you talk about using the, in, in this case, you use sort of, the tattoo is sort of a talisman as you go through it, but you also have this monolith. That's right. This sort of phallic symbol. Yeah, you know, this, that's right. It's in the story as well. Do you like placing these objects in stories to kind of be symbolic or metaphorical of what, what the story is yeah, about? Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, um, and talk about the value of doing that. Well, a, a setting becomes a character, you know, Every reader has read a review that says of a book setting, it was more than just a setting, it was another character in the novel. And um, I think that's what we have to do to bring a setting to life in a story. Ancient peoples were animists. They believed that spirits lived in trees and streams in the soil in a sense, as a writer, we've got to practice literary animism. We've got to penetrate beneath the surface of a place to divine its spirit, its essential character. Um, and, and your book does that because I was, you know, as, as interested in what was happening, you know, in the setting as I was, you know, with the characters. And the characters mm -hmm. were kind of symbiotically attached to this setting because actually there's – it's sort of like this underbelly. You've seen that Netflix upside down world or underworld, whatever that thing yeah, is, yeah. Where, where it flips and there's an underside to it. Mm -hmm. well, well, you might be a part of this upper world like Bill Becker is in here, but he gets pulled below the surface. That's right. right? He starts out in a gated community uh, in a corporate career, and then he gets sucked down into this seedy, underbelly, gothic, you know, underworld of Charlotte, of yeah. uh, straight joint, tattoo parlor. Um, it, yeah, and if he'd just been pulled down from the second floor of the bank to the first floor, it wouldn't have been quite as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know. All right, I couldn't remember at the time we recorded that, but I think the show is Stranger Things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew which one you were talking about, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe uh, this is the Stranger Things meets Uptown Charlotte or something. <laughs> yeah, that, would, that sounds good. That was, that yeah. was about what that book was about. It was sort of you had this corporate world and you had this underworld of tattoo parlors and hanging out the double door in and that kind of thing. So very interesting. But um, so as we start into this topic here and we're using George's, um, you know, thoughts and recommendations as a starting point, uh, we really got two parts of this. How do you draw inspiration from setting? Then how do you, to use Sarah's word, imbue? <laughs> You're right. It was strong to say. So one is about drawing inspiration. The other is actually putting that into your work. Um, so let's talk about the inspiration part of it for a second as a writer um, how important is it to y'all to 
when you're writing a piece, it could be an essay, Hannah, that you've written. It could be screenplay or novel for you, Sarah, or a short story. Do you think about the setting um, before you start writing? For me, it's it's always different. Um, sometimes I start with an idea for a character. It might be a story. It might be a setting. It really just depends from project to project. I do have a short story I've been working on recently where the setting is, is kind of what came to me first, and it's this um, imaginary, it's kind of like a dark fairy tale that's set in this this town that's not quite anywhere in real time or space. Um, so that was fun to write. But yeah, it's it's very different for me from project to project. Um, sometimes the setting is something that I come up with first. Sometimes it's more of like a almost tactical decision later. Um, and this is something that Kathy Daniels also talked about when I was speaking with her, um, was part of how she came up with the setting for Live Caught was looking at a map and figuring out like where these rivers can join. And, and that gave her ideas for how um, she could situate her character, Lenny, because of this journey that he has to go on. So sometimes it's about thinking in terms of the story you're trying to tell or the experiences you need your character to go through. And you kind of pick a setting that allows for that. And sometimes it's more just, you know, I want to write a story that's set in this place <laughs> that is important to me for whatever reason. So it can be a lot of different factors, I think. Exactly. I like the fairy. I want to read that. That sounds really kind of interesting without <laughs> any kind of time or, you know, I love that. Yeah. I think yeah. for uh, for me, since I do a lot of essay writing and nonfiction, um, it's it's kind of always, there's always a place <laughs> that it's like, that's the thing that I remember the most about a lot of things. Um, it's kind of like I was saying earlier about reading books where there's heavy descriptions of food or like the locate, like being outside in a field, stuff like that. You know, I always, that kind of hits me in my heart a little bit. Like, I feel like I'm a very sense sensory person. Like I like, you know, smell, descript stuff like that. Um, so I feel like when I'm writing about experiences that I've had, or if I'm writing, even if it's something to do with like, like a professional recap or something like that, it's always kind of like, you know, this is where this happened. And this is kind of part, a huge part of my experience. I did dabble in some um, like short story writing and I was very into creative writing in college, especially. And um, I quickly realized it wasn't, uh, <laughs> I think my attention spans a little too short to, you know, <laughs> carry that out, uh, which is probably evident. Um, but when I was, was doing that sort of thing, I feel like I was, you know, I wasn't thinking that way like I was more so it's like this is a character that I really want to explore like I really want to get to know this person and I'm and how their brain works and things like that and all, the place almost didn't even come to me until like halfway through writing something so I guess I mean you're right mm -hmm. it sort of depends just based off of probably what kind of writer you are and what story you're trying to tell you know I, I didn't realize until I asked this question of you and of myself how much um I've been inspired by settings and what I've written. I mean, one of the short stories I wrote that uh, won an award was set on the Cape Fear River. Uh, it was a trip we took when I was eight or ten, nine years old, and it's essentially, it is the heart of the story, this trip that went bad <laughs> where we tried to make it from Fayetteville to Wilmington with my dad, and, and nothing good happened along the way. Um, but also, um, you know, my latest book, Deadly Declarations, where the retirement community became uh, a focus of the story, uh, and that inspired me to write about themes that relate to that setting. In other words, connecting the setting to the themes of the story. What's it like to live in a place like this? What's it like to be forced to go there against your will? You know, all these kinds of things. So I, I have been inspired by uh, settings, and um, I've got, before we dive into the whole you know, <clears throat> how to imbue your writing. I like that word again. We'll go there again. 
Um, I've got a little clip from uh, the audiobook of uh, Daily Declarations that it's just a light touch on what happens early in the book um, about the setting itself. I'll play that now. Jaeger stood on the crushed gravel path that fronted his cottage and bordered Lost Cove Lake, the smaller of the two Indy Lakes. He liked to get up early and walk the land, around the community center, past the five-story residence buildings, between the cottages that fronted Freedom Lake, and across the property line to admire the Hezekiah Alexander Rock House, the jewel of the Queen City History Museum. The house was built in 1774 and had stone siding with strange carvings, if you knew where to look, and Jaeger did. It had been home to one of the signers of Mecklenburg County's controversial and long-vanished Declaration of Independence from Britain, signed on May 20, 1775. Jaeger's best friend, Matthew Collins, was taking him on a road trip in a few hours that had something to do with the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. The 96-year-old Collins was known to everyone as the Professor because of his love of history. The Professor did not believe the Mechdeck had ever existed, but he'd promised Jaeger a surprise on their outing one he, said Jaeger, would like. What Jaeger didn't like was the ambulance being parked in front of the professor's building. He walked the fifty yards up the hill and stopped in the shadows, not twenty feet away from a woman dressed in a medic uniform who was talking on a radio. The early morning air was cool and smelled of pine and rain. Clouds gathered. The quiet before the coming storm allowed the seriousness in her voice to carry on the freshening breeze. He's dead, collecting the body now. Jaeger followed the paramedic into the building and onto the elevator for a ride to the third floor. He let her step out first, held the door until she was out of sight, and slid into the elevator lobby. He peeked around the corner of the narrow hallway and saw her enter room 312, the residence of his best friend. Now, the reason I played that is because I was trying to early in the book, uh, kind of give a sense of what this community was like without, you know, diving too deep into the structure. So you find out there's a lake called Freedom Lake. There's a Lost Cove Lake. And these tie into the themes of the book, too. You know, Freedom, Lost, because the main character's lost at this time. Freedom is about, you know, what they're trying to discover with the mech deck. And you find out about the cottages and the condos, which sets up the cottage owners against the condo owners. And you find about Hezekiah Alexander House, and you get a little peek into you know, what it's like, uh, you know, th these condos, third floor and that kind of thing. So, you know, not by any means, um, you know, a perfect example of, you know, setting, but um, it, I think it helps to introduce a little bit about the setting early in the book. I don't know, y'all's thoughts on on this? Yeah, well, actually, this is something that I, I wanted to ask you about when I was reading Deadly Decorations was the retirement community is fictional, right? Like you made that place up. There's no... <laughs> Indie retirement community. <laughs> so, so it's funny you ask because uh, there is a retirement community right next door to the Hezekiah Alexander House. I was it's called, wondering, yeah. It's called Aldersgate. And when I spoke out there, they asked me if it was patterned after Aldersgate. And I said, well, if you like the book, absolutely. Whatever you want it to be. But it's kind of like, like a collage or a mishmash of lots of different retirement communities mm -hmm. um, that are, that are becoming available now for people you know, 60 and over, and uh, it is just, you know, but there are a lot of similarities in all those communities. There, in terms of structurally and maybe what the grounds look like, differences, but in terms of, 
an activities director and all these activities. You know, those are the kind of things mm-hmm. that are part of the setting that people will recognize if they're familiar with Yeah, it, so. I think part of what you did that made the setting in that book feel very real is that you tied it to real places like the Hezekiah Alexander home site and these other sites within downtown Charlotte and stuff like that. So it all kind of feels woven together so that you totally believe that this could be a real place. Yeah, that's so true. (laughs) And we just, you know, it's right next to the Hezekiah Alexander house is is part of the Charlotte Museum of History. I just happen to call it the Queen City History Museum in my book. But, you know, there are a lot of places I named I changed the name just slightly uh, in the book uh, because they had big legal departments and I didn't want to mess with them. Yeah, you probably had some people read, reading this book and they're thinking, like, if they're looking at going to a retirement community, they're like, does this exist? Because right. that, that's, like, right. where I'm I trying want, to go. <laughs> like, I want to go. I want to Yeah. That sounds exciting. <laughs> hang out with Jager. Yeah, exactly. Hang out with Jager. <laughs> Shoot fish in a that pond. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Never a dull day. Um, exactly. All right, well, the second part of the question um, – is how to do it, you know, how to imbue your writing with a strong sense of place. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to rely upon, uh, well, of course, Sarah, you've done this, and Hannah, you've done this in your writing too, but uh, I'm going to rely upon this craft book that Donald Moss wrote uh, about the breakout novel for a couple of points, but I'm going to defer to y'all first. Uh, who wants to jump in? How do you do it? What's What's the trick? Um, I think one one thing that I think is really helpful with making a setting feel real and, and like you're there is to kind of pick both good and bad parts of it. Um, like a book that I, I believe I actually recommended this on our last episode for my recommended read um, is called Honestly We Meant Well by Grant Ginder. And it's mostly about this American family, but they're traveling in Greece, which is a great setting. You know, it's one of those places that like, it's kind of aspirational as a setting. Everyone wants to go there. It's beautiful. The food is great. You know, it's a, it's a big tourist um, attraction. And he, he picks up on a lot of that in the book. And there are descriptions of like the beautiful cliffs and the oceans and wonderful meals that they eat and, and, you know, the little winding streets in the towns and all that sort of thing. But then there are also descriptions where it's like, oh, it's, it's really hot or the beach is crawling with tourists or we've eaten feta like every meal and we're really sick of it, (laughs) that sort of thing. So I think it, it makes it feel like you're really there and it's a real vacation. And yes, there are moments that are beautiful, but it's also the reality of any place, you know, it's not perfect, it's not ideal. So I think that um, picking out those little details that might be both positive and negative can make a setting feel really realistic and kind of transport you there more, at least for me when I'm reading. I feel like, yeah, that's that's definitely true. I think, um, especially when it comes to books about travel or if you're going somewhere that, you know, it's like Eat, Pray, Love. I feel like that's one of the books that I think about, which is so focused on place and just being somewhere different. That's definitely true. There's like great things and not so great things and some scary things that happen and stuff like that. I think for me too, when I'm reading a book, if I'm, um, you know, I, I think when people like bring setting into the story really well, it evokes emotion. Uh, for me like and that's like having the feel as a reader um, that's one of my favorite things ever you kind of want that like floaty feeling in your chest a little bit when you're reading about something happening somewhere 
Um, I feel like when I do write, uh, especially essay writing, if I'm writing about something that's happened in my life, especially I used to write a lot about childhood um, and just memories and that kind of thing. It's it's like you think about like me and my sister used to make these fairy houses and that was very focused on where we would do that. Um, and it made me like feel something. So I always knew, I always feel like when I, when I can feel something in my chest or if it's like making my feelings into a character in the experience of reading, I don't know if that even makes any sense, but it's just um that's kind of how I feel when it's done correctly like if it evokes emotion um because you know if 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 we're looking at a book that where the place really is kind of a character in its own story I think that's sort of the goal with all of your characters right is to kind of you know you identify pieces of yourself in that so um I think for me that's probably one thing for sure yeah and um so this book I was referring to uh Donald Moss um, writing the breakout novel is recommended by the thriller writing team Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson. They appear in episode 292. He says some interesting things about uh, setting, which um, I really didn't think about when I was writing. I hope I did it uh, to some extent. But uh, he says there's a psychology to place. Um, and Hannah, this gets to the point you did talked about about emotions. It might be the kind of place that cheers you up. Or it's the kind of place that he says, quote, gives you the creeps, right? <laughs> uh, it's definitely got its own psychology. But he says that um, a good setting is not just one that, that has an impact on the reader, but it has an impact on the characters. And it makes the characters feel something, and by doing so, it makes the readers feel something. And he suggests that um, you should give your characters an active relationship with the setting. And I guess, you know, using my book example, the characters have an active relationship. Some of them like being in the retirement community. Some don't like being in the retirement community. Mm -hmm. And that's a relationship, whether it's, you know, good or bad. And he says, when telling the story through a point of view character, he suggests trying to, you know, evoke the description of the place by how the character makes, by how the place makes the character feel. You know, if you're in that character's head and you're in this space, what is the character feeling when they're there? This is not just, um, as he said, don't fall into textbook mode. Don't don't just describe, you know, every little flower and petal and pebble on the path along the way. But he says, you know, um, if you're in a character's head, what does this place sound like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? To, to Hannah's point about food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what does it feel like? Do they rub their hands along something and they get a certain feeling about the texture of the place? Is it a very remote landscape to where it's hard to breathe? You know, I mean, there's sand. and or, or is it an uptown city where the horns are blaring so loudly they can't even hear themselves think? If you, if you think about that, that helps give the reader a sense of what the place is like if the character is experiencing something about the place. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great points from both of you. And I think a lot of it comes down to giving specificity to your setting where you're not just, I mean, it's great to describe a setting in a way that feels very real and you're detailed and, and all of that, but you don't want to just write a travelogue. Like you right. want it to be through both your lens as an author and the lens of the characters who are there and how they're experiencing it and how does the setting help to inform the character and vice versa. Um, it's like a, there's a piece of advice that I've heard before to you know write the story that only you can tell. And maybe you can think about it as write about a setting in a way that only you can write about it or in a way that only 
this story and these characters would experience mm-hmm. that setting. Um, so I think that gives it a lot of specificity too. Yeah, and I think one question maybe as we wrap up this discussion to think about is, um, you know, how much is too much, right, when it comes to setting? I mean, it seems to be like a lot more description and literary fiction yeah, for than sure. there is yeah. in, in genre fiction. So, and, and maybe that's just a matter of taste, right? I think it is, honestly, because, I mean, there's some books, and I think I had said this, like, in an earlier episode when, Sarah, you recommended the Murakami book. It's, it's like, when I before I'd read any of, any of his stuff, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, is this just going to go kind of over my head? Because that mm-hmm. can happen sometimes <laughs> with me in, suit, like, very, like, descript- like literary fiction to a T. I just, I can kind of just be like, okay, okay. Like, the Goldfinch, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. haters come at me with that one, but, like, <laughs> the Goldfinch, I was like, I can't. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> like, this is like 700 something pages of just like straight up description right now for me, which I mean, it works in some situations and other times it doesn't. So I think it probably does depend on just kind of what your taste is. Like what kind of books do you like writing? Um, what do you like reading? And then for, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's probably just up in the air, I guess, but not for me. What about you, sir? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, if you have the prose to pull it off, like you can write descriptions that are long and kind of make them work for their own sake if the writing is beautiful enough, but you are sort of isolating yourself into a more niche market when you mm-hmm. do that because there are readers who will read just for the language and that's enough, but probably the majority of readers, they want the story to be moving too, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I, and you can I, do I can't both wait for this plant to grow to, to another foot before exactly. we get to the plant here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, well, that's good. Well, look, these are these are uh, a lot of great uh, tips, and um, I, I'm gonna, you know, take this into account as I work on my next thing. But uh, we've got a little short spot here, and then we're gonna come back with our next author feature. And uh, so, stay with us. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're going to move to our next author feature. And uh, Hannah, you've got uh, this one. You want to introduce our author? Yeah, so I was super excited to talk with um, John Bassoff. He's the author of Beneath Cruel Waters. Um, this one's a psychological thriller, and it's actually his ninth book. <laughs> so he's been writing for a good bit. He was a really interesting person, um, great author to talk to. He this it's uh, he kind of classically writes gothic noir books. Um, this one was a little bit more of a like I said, like a thriller. Kind of goes inside the minds of his characters. Um, he lives in Colorado, so he was coming to us from out there, and he kind of actually the the book is set in that. In, in a town called Thompsonville, which is fictional, but it's kind of based off of where he lives. So um, going back to that sense of place, I definitely kind of felt that throughout reading the book. Um, he's, yeah, so I, I the first question I asked him, because in his bio, he says he's a connoisseur of tequila, hot sauces, psychobilly music, and fleabag <laughs> motels. Um, I was like, off to a strong start here, but I've got to know what is psychobilly music. 
So yeah. um, he's a really fun guy, and it's it sounds like he'd be a, a great person to hang out with. Um, so, but yeah, so he's written nine books. Um, he is his mountain gothic novel Corrosion has been translated in French and German. It was nominated for the Grand Prix Day. Let's see if I can say this. Literature Policerie, <laughs> France's biggest crime fiction <laughs> award. Um, and again, Beneath Cruel Waters, it, it was really, really good. I love uh, psychological thrillers, thrillers in general. That's one of my favorite genres to read. This book was about a character named Holt Davidson, who is now a firefighter. He's kind of, um, he's an adult, moved on with his life from his childhood um, when he finds out his mother committed suicide. So the whole story kind of centers on him going back home to his uh hometown in Colorado and kind of trying to make peace with his childhood and uh, his older sister who he hasn't spoken with in a really long time. Um, and when he's back doing that, he discovers a photo of a dead man. <laughs> so that's kind of how the story uh, gets started. And you kind of go through the stages of his um, journey, both as a child, part of the book takes place when he is a child and the other part takes place when he's kind of going back through his childhood and trying to figure out what happened with his mom. So it's, it's a really, it's a great story. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those books and it, it's, I feel like it ties in really well with this episode because the sense of place is really awesome. And it's also something like he did a great job of showing and telling as well. So it was something where we experienced just because we did kind of go, uh, with his protagonist, you know, back in time to when he was a child. And again, when he was an adult, you're sort of experiencing a lot of different parts of his life. Um, a lot of really great themes involve just kind of like generational trauma, you know, like reliving your past and kind of figuring out what your brain's hiding from you. Um, so it was a really incredible story that he put together and he was just super well-versed in talking about the process of doing that. Um, it's a really, I said to him, I'm like, this is a really dark book, you know, <laughs> like, or it's very dark, but it's super, um, thought provoking. And I feel like I'm still thinking about it now. So I felt really fortunate to talk with him. Um, so yeah, I was, I really enjoyed talking with him and I hope you guys do too. Yeah, I could tell. I listened to the interview and I could tell you really. Oh my gosh. He was book. probably like, relax. <laughs> I was like, it's so good. He's just like, all right. <laughs> but it really is. Well, let's listen. Let's listen to uh, to your interview with with John now. Okay, hey listeners, we're here today with John Bassoff, who's coming to us from Colorado. And John, what part of Colorado are you from? I live in a town called Longmont, which is it's about twenty minutes outside of Boulder. Is it similar to Thompsonville, where the book takes place? <laughs> you know what? Uh, Thompsonville is kind of a fictionalized version of, of Longmont. Yeah, there's there's definitely some similarities there. Okay. Well, today we're going to be talking about your ninth novel, right? So Beneath Cold Waters, or Cruel Waters. Um, and I'm super excited to talk with you. And I think before we get into it, um, I have one question to ask you that's kind of off the beaten path. Yeah. But in the end, so when I'm looking at your bio, it says you're a connoisseur of tequila, hot sauces, psychobilly music, and fleabag motels. Um, what is psychobilly music? <laughs> I feel like I need to know. <laughs> yeah, psychobilly music is kind of like rockabilly, except for it's okay. except for it's really strange and demented with with uh, topics that are a little a little offbeat. So yeah, it's kind of it was kind of like. Uh, I don't know, in the early 2000s, in the 90s, there was a lot of this psychobilly music, so. Okay, that's an interesting, I, I read that and I was just like, I've got to know what that is before we get into anything else. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the most important thing to know. 
Yeah, well, exactly. So, you know, um, so like I was saying, you know, I really loved reading this book. I'm, I'm a huge fan of psychological thrillers. I think there's so much to talk about with that, mainly because, you know, you, you really get into the minds of your characters. And um, so in this book, it's it focuses primarily on three characters, I would say, you know, in the family. So Vivian, Holt and, his, and Ophelia, with Vivian being the mother and um, Holt, the youngest, and Ophelia, the older sister. Um, and so kind of going in, the story takes place in the 80s, right? So kind of going back into their history and their life growing up. And then we kind of jump forward to when Holt's an adult and he's a firefighter, kind of moving on with his life. And then his mother kills herself. So that brings him back kind of to where he's from, um, trying to make peace with his childhood and his, his past and all of that good stuff. But it's a little bit uh, twisty along the way. Um, and so do you want to kind of just get started by telling us just what drew you to the story and um, the character of Holt? Because, you know, I, I definitely feel like he's the main, we kind of follow his psyche throughout the entire story. And so, so just kind of how that came to be. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had a, a friend whose father had just passed away and, and he was going back to kind of clear out the house and and take all the the old stuff out. And and being a writer, I started imagining, well, what if he goes back to the house and and finds all this stuff that makes him question who his dad really right. is or, or really was? And so that was kind of the starting point here of, um, you know, pretty early on in the novel, Holt goes back to his his mother's house after she dies and and makes some discoveries, which makes him question, you know, everything that he's known about her. And that was that was the impetus of of the story. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. Like it, it, you sort of open up the book too, and it gets right into it, <laughs> and I love that as well. And there's also, I mean, when he gets back there and he uncovers a photograph of a dead person, a dead man, and he's like, "What am I going to do here?" There's all sorts of different things that kind of weave together this mystery. Um, one of my favorite lines uh, for, of someone who you know reviewed the book from Barbara Nicholas when she said it's a haunting lyrical tale of mis- family madness and the sins of the past from which we can never wash ourselves clean. Um, I felt like that was the perfect way to kind of put this story just because, you know, the theme that I really connected to a lot um, was generational trauma, which I think can be a really difficult theme to tackle, um, especially right now. So with that being said, how did you go about doing that? How did you get inside the mind of, you know, all three of these characters, really? Because, um, you know, the mother, Vivian and Ophelia and Holt, they all have their kind of, um, story. And I feel like you did a really good job of kind of organizing their brains inside of your brains. How did you do that? Yeah. I mean, it it was, well, certainly challenging is the book does go back and forth in time. And and one of the challenges as, as a writer is um, deciding how much to reveal of my characters, how much they know about themselves and then how much the readers should know about, about them. And um, I wanted to make sure that these were characters that in some way we're sympathetic, you know, the, the choices that they made were our choices that we could see ourselves making. Uh, mm-hmm. but on the same hand, they make some, some choices that lead to some really awful, uh, consequences that end up happening. Um, and yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the generational trauma and I, I think that's, that's a big part of it. And, and a lot of times, you know, generational trauma, uh, we don't always know, what's been traumatic in our past. And so I, I wanted Holt to be able to find out his his trauma slowly as as the reader finds it out kind of in tune with him. That's a really interesting point. And I, I feel like I could actually talk about that forever, just how you were able to do that. Just, um, you know, I think our brains can be one of the scarier 
things that we encounter in our life. And um, I think with it's sometimes you just had to live your life in order to figure out what happened. And I, I think something else that was really neat about this book is that you're, you know, he was living this, you weren't really necessarily having to describe for per se, just what exactly was going on. It was kind of like you were watching him and living these experiences with him. We're like, Oh my gosh, that's what happened. I feel like there was, um, that, you know, you always ask or you think about, is this a plot driven story or a character driven story? And I feel like this was both, um, like throughout the entire time, just watching him kind of go through all of this. And then like lots of twists and turns <laughs> along the way we were like, Oh my God, that's what happened. Um, did you feel like you went into kind of a dark headspace at any point while you were writing this? Since it is, it is pretty dark, I'll say. It is, you know? yeah, it is dark. I mean, every book I've ever, this is my ninth novel and they're all pretty dark it, and twisted. And, right. and it's funny. I, I remember one of my earlier novels, which was probably even darker than this one. Um, I had a, a, a writer who was blurbing the book and he said, yeah, I really love this book, but I got to tell you, I'm super concerned about you as you know, I'm, I'm afraid that you're going to you're going to this terrible, you know, mind space that you pointed out. And it's really not true. Like I, you know, the, I'm able to, to separate the create, the creative parts with, with my right. own life. And so as I'm writing these myself, I'm not going, going into a dark space. I, I just feel kind of energized and it's just the, for whatever reason, it's, it's the type of books that, I, drawn yeah, to. that yeah. I like to write. What's the process look like for you? And like, do you have to re have you done extensive research on just like the human psyche, all of that kind of stuff? Or what does that look like for you? Um, you know, I grew up in a family where my mom's a psychologist. So I think that okay. was just kind of, a, <laughs> was always a, a part of me is looking at, at psych, you know, people's psyches and so forth. Um, I've had my own struggles with depression, anxiety, and, and those kind of things. And I, so I think that goes into it. Um, I've always avoided, maybe it's because I'm lazy, but I've always avoided doing <laughs> too much research because I don't want it to sound contrived. Um, and you know, my, my characters are, are never wholly me, but they're always, I'm sure there's always a piece of me in there as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, usually my, my novels start out with, with, you talked about plot driven versus character driven. I think mean, they mm -hmm. usually start out with, with the plot, but um, but for me with, without those dynamic characters, there's, there's not a lot of reason for somebody to keep reading. And so those, those characters, uh, develop and, and become more complex, I think, as, as the story moves along. Right. And I love that. I think it's kind of an interesting thing to just how you are able to sort of, <laughs> I don't know, you, you take the character through the story and they kind of end up in a totally different place. And do you feel like when you do you outline or do you kind of just free? Oh, I, right? yeah, I definitely outline. I, you know, I, okay. I feel very jealous of those authors who are able just to, to start writing and something beautiful comes out of it. But I, I get too nervous that if I, I start without a plan that I'm going to end up way off on the side of the road. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I have, I have an outline. I, I generally know at the very okay. least, I know where things are starting and where things are going. And there's usually some surprises along the way, um, as, as I move forward. And a lot of times like new characters will, will appear that I had no idea where we're going to enter or become bigger right. characters than, than I thought they were at the beginning. Okay. So we talk a lot about on this show just about reading in general and just different books that inspire and that kind of thing. And I think when, when it comes to being a writer, one of the um, probably most crucial things or parts of that is reading as much as you can. Um, are there specific authors that kind of inspire you that you sort of look to when you're writing a story? Yeah, it's funny. When I first started writing, there was this uh, writer named Jim Thompson, and he was uh, 
he was like a, a pulp crime fiction writer from the 1950s. And his one of his books was called The Killer Inside Me. And it, it was written from the point of yeah. view of like a, a total psychopath. And and he that after reading that book, for whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm partly psychopath. I <laughs> I just uh, I was like, yeah, this, this is what I want to do. I want to I want to write this. And so <laughs> the first book I ever tried writing was just this really bad ripoff of Jim Thompson. It was OK. Um, and then I think as you as you get older, you, you start. I mean, I still imitate, but I think you you imitate badly. And then by imitating badly, you you start developing your own style. So, you know, include other than Jim Thompson, I really like a lot of the Southern Gothic writers. So people yeah. like Flannery O'Connor and right. you know, William Faulkner and and those people. Um I don't know. This book isn't influenced by it at all, but I, I love Ralph Ellison, The Invisible Man's probably my my favorite novel. And um, yeah, and so if you start imitating several authors at once and you don't do a good job imitating any of them, then you, you get yeah. <laughs> you get your own voice, which is hopefully what's happened. Right, that's awesome. And so maybe you should update your bio to say part author, part psychopath. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it, I think it becomes evident as soon as people kidding. meet me. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. So kind of going back into the themes of this book, so did, I, I, a lot of different stuff. I don't want to give too much away right now, but there's so many different themes or ideas and, um, you know, storylines that kind of tie into current events right now, I would say. Just, you know, like, well, suicide, for example, just mental health in general, um, gener generational trauma, just all sorts of things that I feel like have become more um, talked about. Is that something, so did that inspire you at all? Just kind of, you know, paying attention to what's happening in the news or just like different things like that? Because um, I feel like in a way, as I was reading too, it's like sort of therapeutic, I think, for people who have dealt with any of those issues. Yeah, I mean, you definitely don't write in a vacuum. I think you're you're certainly influenced by what's yeah. going on around you. For whatever reason, you know, I've always dealt with with very similar themes, even though all my books are, are pretty different. I've I've never written a series or anything like that, and and they all kind of stand on their own. But I've always just been fascinated by by mental illness, by violence, by um, religious extremism, um, and by memory. And those themes have always kind right. of found their way into all of my novels in, in one way or another. Yeah. That's interesting. I think the idea of memory, and I, I can totally see that in this, because like you were saying earlier, it's just like, you know, Holt didn't necessarily remember things that have had part of the mystery of the book is just kind of uncovering his past, I yeah. think. Um, so and I, I love that. I think that's a really inspiring thing for people and readers, too, because you just sort of are like, oh. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It's just like your brain just hides things from you. So um, well, I'm going to let you do a quick reading if you'd like. Sure. Um, so this is pretty near the beginning of the novel. Um, and there's a, you know, we, we get this description of, of the town and, and of this house. And then we, we kind of move forward into, into entering the house. And that's where I'll start. Surrounding the table were three folding chairs. And sitting in one of the chairs was a man probably in his early 30s, his head shaved and his jaw clenched. He wore a white t-shirt that was too small for his thick chest. Both of his arms were covered with tattoos, but the ink was fading. His most prominent tattoo was the one on his neck, a rose, blood dripping from its petals. He reached for a pack of cigarettes, pulled out a crooked one, and stuck it into the center of his mouth. He flicked open a flame and lit it. His eyes narrowed and smoke trickled from his nostrils. 
For several minutes, he barely moved, only occasionally lifting his calloused hand to his mouth to suck down more smoke. The cigarette was almost down to the filter when the man's head jerked to the right and his eye twitched. From the living room, the sound of the floor or the front door creaking open and then footsteps on the hardwood floor. Still, he remained seated, unmoving. A moment later, a woman appeared, stopping in the doorframe. She was tall and thin and pretty. She had black hair piled high on her head and cornflower blue eyes. She wore lipstick but no other makeup. A white dress fell just below her calves. A red purse dangled from her shoulder. The man gazed at the woman, and his mouth curled into a grin. And now she's here, he said, and his voice was harsh, as if he hadn't used it in many months. I kind of always figured you'd come back. The woman didn't answer, just remained in the doorway, her shoulders rising up and down, her lower lip trembling. Come on then, he said, have a seat, have a drink. She shook her head, said, I'm not thirsty. She took a step forward and then another. Her eyes were darting around and her hand was rubbing up and down her purse. The man crushed out his cigarette and rose to his feet. Fine, no drink, and come give me a kiss. No, she said forcefully, no. After a moment's hesitation, she reached into her purse. She pulled out a small pistol. The man nodded at her, said, That for me? She cocked the weapon and waved it vaguely in his direction. You should have left us alone, she said. You shouldn't have done what you did. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do a damn thing, but I do know you're not going to use that little pistol. The woman laughed, and it was a high-pitched, desperate laugh. Without saying another word, she closed one eye and aimed the gun at his chest. Then she squeezed the trigger once, twice, three times. The explosions echoed loudly in the kitchen. One of the bullets hit the man in the stomach, the other two in his chest. He slammed against the wall, groaning. He remained upright for a moment, as if trying to make up his mind whether to live or die, but life drained quickly and he slid to the floor, blood smearing the wall behind him. For some time, he sat in that scarlet puddle, shoulders rising, breath rattling in his throat. Soon the rattling stopped, his eyes glazed over, and he was still. <laughs> that was one of those scenes that really gave me goosebumps while I was reading, because you're just like, you have no idea what's about to happen. And it really is so descriptive also, just of like the tension in that room. Um, and I think that actually, I'm glad you selected that one to read, because that also kind of ties into another theme that I really found interesting in the book too, which is like, you know, the, the abuse that you can experience in relationships, um, whether it's psychological, like the way he speaks to her, just different things like that. Um, just ooh, very, very emotional, I feel like. Um, I don't know. I, I love that. But was that kind of one of the things, too, that you were thinking about as well? Like, do you ever go back while you're writing this sort of stuff and you're just like, these are the, I can identify these parts of the relationships with these characters. Like, this is going to be kind of a psychologically abusive um, relationship, and this is going to be, you know, reminiscent of that in the future, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, certainly the the mother in, in this um, deals with all sorts of abuse through, throughout her life, and she almost right. she almost seems drawn to it and drawn is the, is the, is the wrong word. Yeah. Um, well, it's a cycle, I guess, throughout her life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and I wanted this to be, you know, instead of a, a whodunit, we find out pretty early on what happened. We, you know, we find out yeah, pretty early right. on, um, that, that she kills this man and, and it takes us a little while to find out who the man is. Um, but I wanted to be more of a, a, a why'd she do it? 
And so, so the book really is throughout is from the very beginning, we kind of have the outline of, of what's happened in the story. Uh, but then it's, it's why did she do it? And, and how did that abuse and, and so forth play into that? Right. And I feel like that's kind of similar to, you know, Ophelia's story is also very um, difficult in a lot of parts throughout this story. And I think her, she has kind of a, a why component. I mean, I guess, I guess they all do really. It's just like, why is this, why are you, why do you behave the way that you behave? Yeah. Um, and how is that influence? But so when it came down to it, just with, uh, I want to talk about Ophelia a little bit, just because she was a character that really, I resonate. She, her story really impacted me a lot. I feel like she just has a really interesting, um, path throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So what was that like kind of fleshing out her journey? Did you have an idea of where you wanted her to go or you were, you were kind of thinking? Because I realize, I feel like the three of these characters have pretty equal parts throughout the whole story, but hers kind of, her path is, goes in a little bit of a different direction. Yeah, I mean, oh, it, it's interesting. I, I talked earlier about like, who do you identify with the most? I, I feel like of the characters I, I identified with with Ophelia the most of. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, her story we find out pretty early on that she has been institutionalized from, for much of her life, for much of her, uh, you know, from the time she was young. Uh, but a lot of the story is told in, in that time when she's a teenager and um, you know, she's, she's somebody who's, who's trying to find as a teenager, she's trying to find her way in the world. She's trying to find right. her identity. She's trying to find, um, you know, relationships. She's trying to find people who care for her and, um, and she's as much of a victim as, as anybody else is. I mean, all, all three of our characters um, are really victimized throughout. And yeah. In some ways, they victimize each other, not always knowing that they're victimizing each other. Um, but I felt a lot of a lot of empathy for o- Ophelia. And, um, and and she changed a lot as I was writing. I, I had some help from my from my editor, especially as as the book went on and, and nearing the end of the novel of, of kind of changing a little bit of, of who she was. Um, but, but from the beginning, I knew that she was going to be kind of the, the key to the story. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. She really is the key to it all. And I feel like until the very last page, everything kind of falls together perfectly. That's, that's a really great feeling when you're reading a book and you're just like hitting the last few pages and you think, wow, so this all makes perfect sense. She really is the key to all of it. Um, and I, yeah, I really enjoyed reading her parts. I felt like I was kind of really excited to get to the place where it'd be like about her yeah. and she's a cool kid honestly yeah. when she was a teenager wait, I was actually bringing up uh this book on the podcast last week and uh, I called it badass and I feel like that's how I would you know describe the characters in this book they're pretty badass people um very well rounded just like brave there's a lot of bravery that I feel in all of them in different ways which I feel like is a really cool and kind of rare thing um so that's great so I have one more question um I wanted to see what you thought so when when a reader finishes this book what are the questions you think that they will ask themselves or what what do you want them to ask themselves oh man um I asked that because I asked myself a lot of questions (laughs) so I was like I need to know (laughs) yeah I guess you know it's, it's asking the questions about ourselves and about how well we really know ourselves and um and how sometimes discovering who we really are and and what we've done takes time um you know i hope my my biggest hope is that through this book that people feel empathy for the characters and 
kind of an understanding of why they make the decisions that that they make. I think a lot of times, especially you talked earlier about all the news that's going on around us, it's it's easy to make quick judgments and and put somebody and and say this is this person is a bad person, this person is a monster, and um, I think hopefully this book kind of removes some of those those assumptions and and as we, you get to see the whole story you begin understanding how a person became who they are so right that that's my hope i think that you achieved that so well done i really loved it i already um, i'm going to include this actually i do a column for the podcast on book recommendations and i'm going to have this in my july recommendation uh-huh. list i really really enjoyed it um my family, we're all huge fans of psycho crime thriller, like just the mental stuff. It's just, it makes it that much scarier, I think, mm-hmm. uh, honestly, which for better or for worse, but just because, I don't know, there's so many twists and tor- turns in the brain. And I think it's really hard to kind of get that right. But you did that. So, you know, thank you for your work. Well, I appreciate it um, so much. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today. This was awesome. And again, I, I love talking to you. Um, where can our listeners find out more information about you? Do you have a website? I do. Probably the easiest place is it's uh, just johnbassoff.com. So you can just head there cool. and find out everything you've ever wanted to know. <laughs> All about psychobilly music. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Take care. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, well, good. Uh, we're at Act 3 now, um, and uh, we got a little marketing talk Um Something, uh, true confessions here that uh, none of the three of us know much about. <laughs> but, but having said that, we have studied it up a little bit, and we are, and we've got an author um, who we're going to feature in just a little bit, uh, who's going to give us some helpful information on. It. And the topic is book talk, and uh, is it worth a try for authors? And I, I guess my question first to, to both of y'all is, when did y'all first find out about book talk? Probably like, I feel like in the last year or so, definitely throughout the COVID era, TikTok in general has just like boomed out of somewhere. Um, And so I think in general, like that's like the videos on TikTok of all, there's been so many viral ones. And then with BookTok, um, probably within the last year is when I really started kind of taking a look into it because so many of the authors that I, you know, either just knew or worked with, it's like they were sort of focusing on that because it was just turning out to be a really great way to connect. Um, but I feel like it did kind of just come out of nowhere though. <laughs> kind of like <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, we have, uh, an author, Susan uh, Goodwin, who we're going to feature, uh, her book, uh, Rice will beat a novel, but uh, first she's going to help us out with this topic of book talk, talk and we're going to share some information that we found out about uh, uh, book talk. Uh, Su- Suzanne um, says she wants to point out that she uh, she does post videos on book talk, which is where authors promote their books, um, and uh, 
She says, you may not have explored this medium yet. And I said to myself, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I have <laughs> but, not. <laughs> but she also said it's it, it's the number one way to reach readers under 30 and is upending the industry. Yeah. Bookstores actually have book talk tables and they, they carry books of authors who are on this app. So anyway, I thought it'd be helpful if we played her a uh, little 45-minute uh, piece on book talk and then we can talk a bit more uh, about this before we talk about her novel. Let's talk about book talk. Book talk is a fairly new phenomenon and one of the newest ways of reaching readers. It's an online community that was formed on TikTok in 2020 after a user put up a video that inspired others to post about books that they liked. Since then, it has grown into a way that readers share their recommendations and where authors can connect with their readers. It first gained notice when a young adult book by Adam Silvera called They Both Die at the End started to have a sudden uptick in sales in the summer of 2020. The book had originally been released in 2017, and its sales had since waned, but now was selling enough copies to put it back on the New York Times bestseller list. Silvera discovered the renewed interest was due to readers posting about his book on BookTok. Videos of young girls crying because his book had moved them so much had gone viral, spreading their love of the book to new readers. And his book was not the only one. Colleen Hoover is another book talk favorite that readers like to post about, showing how much her books mean to them. Learning how to do a TikTok video is not difficult, but here's the thing about book talk. It's important that a video be authentic as viewers want to connect with the person posting the video. It's a chance for the author to convey the emotions in the book and give a glimpse of how a particular book will make a reader feel. Becoming familiar with the TikTok app is fairly easy if you take some time to learn how to navigate it. I first watched YouTube videos to help me understand the editing techniques to make my videos more interesting. Then I started following other authors on BookTok to see what they were doing. What I found was each one has their own style. One author I follow makes comical remarks about the writing process, such as how her characters won't leave her alone, which I can relate to. Another author will post videos of herself doing everyday activities like unbagging groceries while telling you about some guy she just met last weekend, which is actually the storyline in her latest book. Most videos are 15 to 30 seconds long, and it helps to be funny or have something that quickly captures a viewer's attention. Since I wrote about a real place, Wrightsville Beach, I use photos and videos of Wilmington to visually show some of the locations that my characters visit. Though I also find using videos of my German Shepherd while talking about the book can generate a lot of views as well. For by using him, I'm also reaching people who are searching for German Shepherd or dog videos and who come across my video that see about the book. Like any other social media, it's hard to predict how many views you will get. But if you put up something that touches viewers, it will be shared and seen. If you want to see some of my videos, you can search at Goodwin Books, which is spelled G-O-O-D-W-Y-N Books, all one word, or do a search for hashtag Wrightsville Beach Novel on TikTok, and I should pop right up. Right now, it's one of the best ways to reach readers when they're 30, but the over 30 crowd is quickly developing on TikTok as well, as I'm finding more and more friends are starting to use the app. All right. That's just enough to make us dangerous now. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne, for that. Uh, I feel like this is a little bit like, um, you know, it started to take off. People got on, on the ground floor a couple of years ago, and, and almost like the train is, it's almost too late to get on the, the train for somebody uh, who thinks, okay, well, I'm going to get on and I'm going to make my book a bestseller, I'm going to sell lots of copies. And yet, at the same time, like any other social media platform, um, if it's something you like to do, if you like to work with video or you like to work with images or you like to work with short 
pieces and you're good at, you know, doing those kinds of things, it might be a fun way to go. There was actually a New York Times uh, uh, article uh, in July that uh, I saw this morning was talking about uh, book talk and TikTok, and they actually mentioned the author that uh, Suzanne mentions, Colleen Hoover, and how she's now, because of TikTok, one of the best-selling authors in the country, and, uh, you know, of the 10 best-selling books so far this year, she has four of them. So I guess when people hear that, they go, oh, well, I'm going to run out and get on TikTok, so I'm going to be a best-selling mm-hmm. author. But, of course, when I, I looked her up, and she's got also a backlist of about 20 novels. She's been a best-selling, uh, award-winning author before this. So it wasn't like TikTok just did it for her. It was one of the things that helped push her over, yeah. even though she had a platform and a, and a big backlist that was already developed. But it's interesting to me that, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the process uh, in a minute, but uh, just in terms of how recent this is, and Hannah, you being a publicist, you know, fads come and go. I mean, there was Google Plus at one time, and now it's mm-hmm. gone. And, you know, will this be with us or will it be a fad, and do you invest your energy in it? Um this is one of the things I think with our attention spans getting shorter and shorter, I don't know what your take on this is, but 15 seconds to grab someone's attention. If you're good at it, maybe it's got some stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if you guys remember vine. Do you remember vine? Mm -hmm. So vine was sort of similar to TikTok, and I was a vine fanatic. I mean, I've always really been into video too. Like I mentioned, I was a film studies major first when I went to college. I'm like, Oh, this is because I just, I think like, YouTube, if you have like a short, I don't know, I love short videos where you just have an opportunity to get something across. I like weird humor, stuff like that. And I think what it, what platforms like either Vine or now TikTok do is kind of gives you a way to be yourself and connect with people through that. So, I mean, it's like with any kind of social media, I think, which I always tell my authors or if I'm talking with folks about something like this at a literary event, it's like you really just want to you don't really want to use social media to kind of just sell, sell, sell something because that's just not how it works. It's more just about um, like being authentic and kind of showing the behind the scenes. And I think with video, it I mean, and again, it's just like the perfect thing to talk about just in relation to the show. Don't tell that kind of thing. But that's what you do is you show who you are um, with these videos. And they're supposed to be fun. You know, it's kind of like Suzanne was just saying um it's it's like you don't (laughs) you don't need to they they shouldn't be all polished up basically you don't have to go on there and have these kind of graphics sliding in or anything like that it should really just be like funny or you know quick things that you can do and you're right landis i mean your point about the attention span being shorter and shorter i think that's always why these video apps have performed really well over time like even if you're just looking at something like youtube like youtube is the second largest search engine in the world um Um, And it's still around years and years and years and years later. And so these apps like, uh, I think Vine, I don't know, it kind of filtered out. But now it's like we have hashtags. So TikTok is like modern social media technology, basically, I think. And I think it will be around for a while um, just because it's already kind of evolving. Like at first it started out with being just more of like a dance video platform so it was like you'd learn these tiktok dances and you'd see like the kids these days doing the dances and you're like how do you do this you're like 12 um but now it's you know it's a marketing tool so you see a lot of the brands a lot of big brands um authors or actors you know everybody's like you got kind of have to be there because 
if you're not, you're missing out on a huge market. And yeah, I mean, video is a huge tool and it's a way, I think it's a good way to kind of just be funny. It sounds like the author she mentioned too, that where she's like, my characters won't leave me alone. Like da 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 stuff like that I think is great because <laughs> you're just, it's supposed to be fun. So the more fun you can make it for yourself, the better. All right. What are the chances you can talk all the authors you represent? <laughs> and low, get on book low, talk? low yeah. chance. <laughs> <laughs> very low chance oh i can think of You're one <laughs> that would do it you might do it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i feel like i can convince you to do it maybe well if i did it for you yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly but 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 one of the things that that article said and sir maybe you can comment on this but uh the new york times article talked about um it's not so much authors talking about uh the the plot or the characters um in a traditional kind of review format mm -hmm. um it's more about how the book makes people feel yeah. and that's why when you see these videos of women holding the book crying mm -hmm. you know they say oh my gosh or the women or holding the book it across the room and throwing <laughs> it across the room that's probably not the review you want <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah but um I've, and i've heard so i went on um line and there was this uh, video maybe we'll put it in the show notes uh to give credit to the person who educated me a little bit today but it's uh had a book talk and it talks about different ways to do it and she actually walks through how you use the app and she does a couple and it, once what she was doing was something called a book haul where she had five or six books and she had had them in her arms and then she held one up and then she flipped the pages and then you know she pauses and then she takes another book and flips those pages and turns it like it and the book changes you know and she pieces all these together it looked like it was taking about 20 minutes to <laughs> to create a you know a one minute deal and yet it was catchy it was you know interesting and the other one i liked uh, she talked about was that people will get on there and they'll say you know um and they'll pretend to be the character in the book and they start telling their life story and they tell about 30 seconds and get to a cliffhanger and then they go yeah and that's what this book's about you know and so they kind of do it they personalize it and that kind of thing and authors uh, I've been doing some creative things too, but Sarah, speak to the emotion piece of this and why you think that it would be something that would attract people. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, just by its nature, it's such a short medium. If you have, what is it, like 15 seconds to one minute to do your, yeah. your review, I mean, you can't do, you know, a detailed, right. nuanced review in that that time and actually go through like, here's what I really liked or here's what I think didn't work well or that sort of thing, um, which I will say my initial reaction to TikTok and to BookTok has been pretty negative as someone who's not on it. So I, I can't speak from personal experience, but I'm always like, oh, you know, our attention spans are contracting. It's the downfall of civilization. <laughs> we don't need more social media, this kind of thing. Um, and there is, I think, a downside to that for authors and that people can't give your book, you know, a really fair, balanced, nuanced, in-depth review on a platform like TikTok. But at the same time, we still have plenty of places like Amazon and Goodreads and, and other forums for, you know, that sort of, um, those sorts of reviews and reactions. And, you know, I think TikTok is good about letting people get creative and showing if it's showing how, how they react emotionally to a book in a certain way, or if you're coming at it from you're the author and you're trying to talk about your own writing, you know, things about um, like the example of the woman who was unpacking her groceries and, and talking about the story and, you know, <laughs> making it sound like it's her real life. And then you kind of realize that it's actually something that's happening in her writing. I think that it's a fun way for people to show their personalities and to just talk about their work in different and unexpected ways um, that we're not really seeing as much on other platforms. So I'm, and one of, 
Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying I, I'm i not totally ready to jump on it yet, but I, I'm getting closer. <laughs> I yeah. like the idea that well, you can get creative. One of the things that, that, you know, I find interesting about it is that um, based on what people were saying in this article, New York Times article and, and other is that, you know, this is word of mouth promotion. And there have been authors who've talked about the fact that they were on the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal or they were USA, whatever. And none of that sold books. What sold books were people reading their books and telling their friends mm-hmm. about the books. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just an author getting on Book Talk, you know, without being somewhat creative is not going to do anything. Somebody's got to pick that up and read the book and then do their own book talk and kind of pass the word around. And so reviews in and of themselves, um, they're nice. Ratings are nice. It's nice to have a number of them, uh, even the ones that aren't any good. Um, but but ultimately, it's about those people that are actually telling someone else that they liked your book, right? They're, your, they're the biggest sale. And I think that's what book talk is kind of trying to tap into, the fact that people really emotionally connect enough that they're crying or they're laughing or they're throwing the book across mm-hmm. the room <laughs> or they're taking it on a backpacking trip with them or, or they're creating these book halls and showing them to the world and that kind of thing. So I think it's got uh, some potential, but, you know, it falls back into that realm. You know, authors, um, I think, are, are trying to write a synopsis of your book for a novelist. I mean, we're, we're not good at that, you know. So trying to then boil down the whole book into 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about a challenge, but I think it would be good training, right? I think if you could figure out how to do book talks, um, 15 seconds to 30 seconds and do it in eight or 10 creatively different ways where you're a character or you're in the setting or you're doing whatever, um, pretending to be somebody in in the book, you're going to learn how to do shorter pitches of your book mm-hmm. and hannah's dogs are coming to like, the podcast right? <laughs> yeah. my dogs my dog's about to yeah i know too, i'm so. like guys come on <laughs> yeah exactly bark talk. yeah but uh so and, and, and i think just uh, you hear that bark talk i like that <laughs> <laughs> bark talk that's right so anyway a little wrap up here book talk was formed in 2020 according to wikipedia uh, i mean so not long ago the creators who make these things uh, that we watch are called book talkers. Um, they focus on books and literature. Um, and the interesting thing is that you know it's having an effect because big publishers are creating their own book talk pages and assigning people in social media to spend more time on book talk than they are on some of the other social media pages. And Barnes and Noble, you know, has partnered with Book Talk, and over the next uh, during the summer. They're having this thing where they call them the Book Talk Challenge, where you pick a book from their list, and they've got various lists, and the lists are like these, enemies to lovers, fake dating, suspense, opposites attract, paranormal. You pick a book, you go make a book talk about it, and you get into the competition. I mean, and so they're being smart about this, and then you know, Books A Million actually shows what's trending on Book Talk, and when bookstores are putting Book Talk books recommended in the, on their mm-hmm. shelves, it tells you that, you know, this uh, online medium is having an effect. But, you know, the question is, um, how many social media channels can you do and how many can you do effectively? And that comes down 
to be the issue, does it not, uh, old marketing whisperer? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And something else that I was just thinking about, too, for authors, I mean, that's definitely a common complaint slash just comment that I hear a lot where it's like, there's so many. Do I really need to do all of these different things? It's kind of, which is true. And you really don't. And I've said this, you know, I, I feel like I, I've probably even said this on here before, but you really don't need to do all of them. It's kind of the one that you find yourself having the most fun with. And I think part of it is that TikTok is fun. So you see a lot of authors on there that are able to kind of just like, it's it's less pressure almost. I don't know why that is. I guess it's because it's these quick snippets where you can sort of just showcase your personality and um, stuff like that. And it's, it's like an easy way, an easy thing to do versus if you're strategizing to post X posts on Instagram or these graphics that you have to create and stuff like that. I think what scares authors a lot from using TikTok is that you really, it's hard to hire someone to do that for you <laughs> because it has to right. be, cause you gotta, yeah, be the you gotta, you gotta do gotta be, it. Like yeah. it has, it's, you can't really say like, Oh, you know, penguin, let me get some of your marketing people down here. And can you just like put some stuff up on TikTok? It's like, I can do that. Yeah. But, you know, it's not really going to be nearly as effective as if you're in it. And so, like, because that's the point. It's just not supposed to be. And I would say that's even the same, you know, lately for Instagram. It's like you kind of anything visual, it's it's a lot better if you can be a little bit more um, at least, you know, 75 percent of your content being kind of personal, just like these are personal photos that we've taken. We've taken the time to do this and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's with, with book talk, you really can't hire out for that kind of thing. It's just, it's tough. So I think a lot of authors mm -hmm. are like, well, that's not fun. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. It's like Hannah, Hannah, can't, can't I do that? Hannah? And I can do, I mean, like, and I say, I'm like, you know, if you give me some videos, give me some videos of you doing X, Y, Z, it's, but it's super right. easy to do. And it's quick. Like, I mean, you literally could do a, a TikTok video and like, I mean, you know, like we were saying, it's 15 seconds to a minute, minute. So it's not very long. Um, and just like, yeah, but if you, if you edit it and then you, piece it together to be something that because if you look at these things there there's a lot of transitions a lot of movement yeah. you know it's like the eye flicking when you watch mm -hmm. television you know the flicker that, that come i mean there's scene right. changes right so in that thir 15 to 30 seconds or more you might switch the scene or the or what's happening four five or six times and that takes a little bit of editing not that yeah. you can't manage it because the app apparently is pretty easy to use just like you're using right. your iphone if you take a video and you can actually edit out parts of that, you know, and then put it up. So maybe it'd be fun to work with. Maybe we should uh, challenge ourselves that, uh, I don't know, what would be a reasonable deadline? Uh, Tomorrow. Three years from now. <laughs> we'll be a new app by then. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, for real. Three, <laughs> three years from now. <laughs> like, who knows? Who knows what we'll be doing should in we, three should years? We, should we ha we should, maybe we should ask our listeners, should we have a Charlotte Rose podcast TikTok account? That'd be kind of know, fun, we, actually, uh, I think. You know, well, for me. You know, where we put up different <laughs> books uh, and that kind of thing. But to your point, Hannah, I have followed your advice on that, the new Instagram it's page fun, you have right? set I up, like the rights page. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've posted, you know, 11, 12 times, and I've only posted about the book once. So that's kind of, you know, part of that piece. And, uh, yeah, you know, we'll that's do that. great. But, uh, I think you're doing a good job. So, Sarah, you'll be putting up some book talk soon. Is oh, that gosh, right? maybe. Yeah. Don't hold me to it. <laughs> Sarah's like, no. <laughs> I'm going to hire William to do that for me. <laughs> yeah, he would be great at it. He's very photogenic or telegenic, That's whatever. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we'll have, uh, yeah, we'll have the dogs uh, 
Maybe we can get the dogs to do that. <laughs> Find, uh, something yeah, for I, them to, to work on. Uh, no, but Su- Suzanne has given us some uh, good ideas, and thank you, Suzanne, for that. And speaking of her, let's. Uh, uh, we got this uh, little piece, and then we'll jump right into uh, into the feature of Suzanne Goodwin. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, I'm responsible for this one. Uh, and the reason I, I wanted to take this uh, book, uh, I've got a real connection to Riceville Beach. Um, it goes back a number of generations. Um, Susan Goodwin has written this book. It's just a love story, Riceville Beach, a novel. It's set at Riceville Beach. And uh, for me, Riceville Beach has kind of been a love story, too, because our family has roots there. My great-grandmother, who was named Obama uh, in the 1930s, uh, somehow, even though women couldn't get loans to start a business at the time, got some politician, I don't know what she had over him, but to co-sign a loan for her, and she was able to open a hotel on Riceville Beach called the Landis Hotel. And uh, they had three three hots and a flop is what it was. You got uh, three meals a day, and you were right there on the beach, open air, no air conditioning. Um, and people came from all over uh, to come down to their week at the beach, and Bama was kind of the matriarch. And right now, um, there's a place there, Station One, uh, Station One uh, condominium, whatever, that sits right where the... Landis used to sit because even before the Landis, uh, the only way you could get to Riceville Beach was on a trolley, and they had various stations one, two, three, four, five, where you got off until you got off at the south end of the beach at Lumina, which had so many lights in the 1920s and 30s that they could be seen from space if you were in space or could be in space at that time. So, uh, yeah, so Riceville Beach is um, is special to me. So when I saw this book, I thought oh, this would be fun to do because I'd like to see what uh, you know kind of scenes. They have there. Um, and also, Suzanne, like me, she was uh, she calls herself a practicing attorney in denial. I guess uh, she wants to be a recovery in recovery like me, but she hadn't gotten, <laughs> hadn't gotten there yet. Uh, she lives in Virginia with her husband and two daughters and her pandemic puppy, Ooh. she says. She's been writing since childhood, been published in national magazines. and uh, uh, But then she set her side of writing career when told by a fortune teller that success in that field would come later. Now, that's interesting. Um, in a way, she says the fortune teller was right as she did not find her writing voice until after she had children. And she had to wait for those children to grow up to give her the time to develop all those ideas and jot down moments she had collected through the years. Um, and uh, so she wrote this book uh, because she loves Riceville Beach. Um, it's, it starts out, uh, there's a couple of characters uh, in this love-hate relationship uh, that turns out to be a loving relationship as all good uh, endings go in these kind of books. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's a surfer and uh, she's a, a marine biologist. Uh, we, we see the life of sea turtles. Um, it's, uh, it's a novel about self-discovery, surfing, and finding uh, true love. I asked uh, Suzanne what she... Uh, what her inspiration was uh, for the novel, and uh, here's what she had to say. My inspiration for writing Wrightsville Beach was very personal. Uh, the character of Hank came to me first, and when I thought about where I wanted to set his story, I quickly decided on Wrightsville Beach. 
My mother moved to Wilmington in the late 1980s, and I've been a frequent visitor since, making it my second home. Um, I was drawn to its beaches, its charm, its history, and by writing about it, I could visualize it even when I wasn't there. Uh, but what solidified the book was when I decided Hank needed a love interest, and that is when I introduced Jess. Jess's purpose was to show my then 15-year-old daughter what a good relationship looked like. Uh, she was in high school at the time, and I was seeing what her friends were doing. And I didn't want those relationships or what she found in the media to be her only references as to what modern dating should look like. Knowing how at that age she was unlikely to listen to any advice that I as her mother may have, um, I decided to write her a book to tell her all the things I wanted her to know about finding the right person to love and about making choices about where you want your life to go. And that is what became the heart of the story. That and the fact that I had developed a strong interest in sea turtles while at Wrightsville Beach the story of which I talk about at the end of my book. Um, I decided to have Jess study to be a marine biologist so I could write about sea turtles laying nests and what it was like to see one hatch, as well as a number of the other issues currently surrounding them. Uh, apparently, there are not a lot of fiction books that portray a young woman biologist studying sea turtles, so the reaction I've gotten from people who volunteer at sea turtle rescues or have seen an area on the beach where a sea turtle nest has been roped off have really enjoyed reading about what it's like to work with them. I've actually described the book as Nicholas Sparks meets Where the Crawdads Sing, since it involves both a North Carolina love story, but also Jess's journey in becoming a scientist and the hands-on work she does with the turtles. So the book Wrightsville Beach was primarily inspired by my daughter, but you can also say it was inspired by the world of sea turtles. So yeah, I mean, this, this is great because we've been talking about inspiration today. Um, uh, inspiration setting, obviously, this is a setting, right? Wrightsville Beach, iconic beach. Mm -hmm. And she was inspired to write this story, also inspired by her teenage daughter and sea turtles. Uh, and look, if you're not inspired, you can't sit and write a novel, can you? That's true. <laughs> I mean, it Makes takes it a lot harder. To, <laughs> it takes a while. Oh, well, let's, let's listen to a little scene from the book um, before we move on to the uh, next act. Here is Suzanne Goodwin reading uh, from her novel. In this scene, Hank and Jess have just spent the morning together for the first time in which Hank has taught Jess to serve. When they grew tired, they walked over to Johnny Mercer's pier where there's a lunch counter and got something to eat. They are sitting on the deck overlooking the beach while Jess explains how she chose to attend UNCW and how she first developed a love of sea turtles. This summer, Jess had volunteered to help monitor the nests with another local group, the Wrightsville Beach Sea Turtle Project. Sea turtles would start coming ashore to the island in May to bury their eggs. Volunteers from the group walked the beaches each morning, and when they spotted turtle tracks and found the nest, a makeshift enclosure would be posted around it. It doesn't help much with the raccoons or the crabs that try to dig up the eggs to eat them, but it does give them some protection from beachgoers who aren't familiar with the nests, Jess said between bites. Did you ever see a nest hatch? Hank asked. He had seen the protective enclosures on the beach, but had never thought much about them. No, but I have looked it up online to see what it's like, she said enthusiastically. The nest actually looks like it's bubbling because of how the turtles climb over each other to get out. It's amazing to me how they instinctively know to wait until the sun has gone down and the sand is cool before emerging from the, the nest to avoid predators, you know, like crabs or seagulls that try to swoop down and take them as they head to the ocean. The theory is that as few as 1 in 10,000 of the hatchlings may make it to adulthood, but that's that's still being studied. I really hope to get to see a nest hatch this year. Her voice trailed off as she momentarily got lost in thought. 
Jess stopped and looked at Hank, who was sitting back and smiling at her. Sorry, she said, realizing how she'd been going on. I'm sure you never intended to learn about the life and habits of sea turtles as part of your lunch. She took a silence for polite interest and hoped she hadn't bored him. Actually, you make it sound fascinating, he replied, shaking his head, impressed with her passion. I never thought much about them, even though I've seen sea turtles swimming in the channel. I've actually made conservation of them the focus of my studies, she said. When I see these incredible creatures come to the turtle rescue so hurt, and here it is due to being hit by a motorboat or being caught in fishing line, it breaks my heart. It's amazing what some of them live through. When they were done eating, Hank told her he wanted to show her something. He took her out to the pier, making the long walk to the very end, which was quite a ways out, where a dozen fishing poles were set up. Look down, he said, and she looked over the edge down to the deep blue water. What am I looking for, she asked, and then she saw them. Sharks were circling around the poles, obviously attracted to the fish being lured by the bait. She looked back at Hank, stunned. I swam in the water that close to sharks, she asked, suddenly not so excited about her surfing success. Well, not that close, he said. I think the feeding is better down here. Don't marine biologists like sharks, he asked, trying to joke to ease her concern. Some of them do, but I prefer to see them from a distance, and preferably in tanks. Have you ever encountered a shark while surfing, she asked, not sure she wanted to know. Once, he said. I was on my board waiting for a wave when I looked down and saw about a five-foot shark swim underneath me. Jess was amazed. What did you do? She knew full well that would have been enough for her to give up the sport. Hank laughed. I rode the next wave in and called it quits for the day. It was my own fault. It was dusk when they go hunting for food. I knew better. You just have to pick your times right. I've been surfing for years and no shark bites. He turned and smiled at her. Yet. Charlotte Weeders Podcast is on social media and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Weeders Podcast. Check us out. All right, here we are in Act 4 and um, this is where we have listener emails and listener speak pipe. But, uh, you know, we're just getting started with that so uh, <laughs> we don't have that yet. Uh, we want y'all to <laughs> want y'all to engage with us. Send us an email, ask us a question. Uh, you can do that on SpeakPipe as well. Send us uh, SpeakPipe. Recommend some books. Uh, we do get those on our Instagram uh, and our Facebook account, and Sarah will be looking for those and trying to spot them. I actually saw some recently, Sarah, on our Instagram account, I think, uh, in response to the post, Hannah, you put up about, you know, what are you reading? Or maybe mm -hmm. do you have an author to recommend? People recommended mm -hmm. some authors, so we can maybe take that and add that to some future episodes as well. But, uh, yeah, listeners, look, go to that, um, go to our website, charterspodcast.com, go to the tab that says uh, contact and there'll be a drop down there for listener feedback and that's where you can engage with us um, and also if you're a writer um, and you want to write a blog post you're going to get featured in a number of ways that we accept your post they're really only 750 words or less um, you can use something you've used before you can repurpose it uh, if you want you can write something new but uh, if we really like it uh, what we'll do is we'll put it on the uh, put it on our community blog. Uh, we'll put it in our newsletter and we'll feature you on uh, the podcast. We'll talk about your blog post and maybe from time to time we'll have you maybe read some of your blog posts that we will put on as well. So this um, this blogger has been on our 
podcast before, and Hannah, you work with uh, yeah, this uh, awesome. author too. You want, yeah. you want to introduce Paul? Paul is awesome. Yeah. His name is Paul Attaway, and he lives down here in Charleston um, most of the time with me. He writes out in Idaho in the summers, which is quite lucky considering the uh, temperatures. Every time I talk to him, I'm like, <laughs> what's the temp out there? <laughs> Hopefully it's better than here. But he's great. He's a Southern storyteller. Um, he is kind of part historian as well. He's super well-versed in writing about... Um, low country history but also just kind of weaving in his own characters and that kind of thing um so he writes his first book was called blood in the low country and so it was kind of the start of a series which um he talks about a little bit in his blog post which is called writing a sequel and maybe a series so it's (laughs) he kind of talks about what you got to think about if you're when you write your first book if you want it to be a series or if you want it to be an anthology or um if you want to continue to focus on the same characters or divert into something totally different um but yeah, he just published his second book, which can kind of, called Eli's Redemption, which is, I would say, I mean, like I said, he sort of decided on a semi a hybrid anthology series where he focuses on the characters that are in each of his books, but it's not really, you can read them as standalone novels. So, um, and that came out earlier this year. And so in his blog post, it's kind of, you could probably speak to some of the points here as well. Landis just writing, um, mm-hmm. deadly de- declarations and making that decision to kind of carry on stories about those characters. But he sort of talks about the decisions you need to make in this post when you decide, you know, where you want to take your characters and the story and that kind of thing. And, um, so there was three different decisions that he had, which were, or I guess four really, but do you want to write a book that stands on its own or do you want to write a series? Um, kind of think about your point of view. So whose voice do you want to be heard here? Do you want a narrator? Um, all of that kind of thing. And then again, do you want it to be just a sequel or kind of move, how many books do you want to have in the series? And then what kind of series? So it's a great post and he it's, it's kind of interesting too, if you're writing, it's writing fiction and you're kind of attached to one of your characters or um, you feel like there's more story to tell and you really enjoy telling these stories just it's it really opens the door into a lot of different things and I think he says in the end of his post you know like I liked hanging out with these guys like I liked I liked hanging out with my characters and I felt like there was more work to do here so um, that's what he's going to do yeah and and I like um, interesting thing about this post is that uh, Paul had not made up his mind uh, or even thought about mm-hmm. writing a series until after he finished his birth, first book and, as you said, fell in love with his characters, which I think yeah. happens a lot of times um, to authors. That uh, And, you know, um, for me, that's exactly what happened on my first series, the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. I didn't know I was going to write a second book and I didn't know it was going to be a sequel, but I had so much fun with the characters I did it. And then when I figured out a way to... Uh, bring it all together with a third book, I thought a trilogy would be a nice way to do it. Um, you know, I think uh, getting to the point of my article on procrastination, um, I may have announced too soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a series. There's going to be now asking when the next book. That's a good thing, though. <laughs> and uh, I need to get, yeah, that's, that's a good thing, and I need to get, I need to, get to work on it. But uh, there are some things you need to think about uh, in a series. Uh, as Paul points out in his post, is it going to be, um, the kind of series that, uh, you know, one particular book feeds another book. Uh, I'm thinking about maybe he uses the example of the Hobbit series or the Godfather movies. Uh, another could be Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. for example, you know, where you kind of need to know 
something about the characters from the earlier books before you jump into the next ones. And then there are those series, um, which is more like what I'm going to be writing, and apparently he's writing with Deadly Declarations in his series, where you're relying upon the characters to wrap up a mystery in that particular novel. Yeah, it would have been nice to read the first one, but you can read it uh, without having mm-hmm. read the first one. It might drive people back to the first one because you're not giving away any spoilers in the second or third one that happened earlier. Uh, and it's a way that novelists can build, you know, this backlist uh, to where they can then try to, you know, maybe finally make some money off their mm-hmm. books or something, you know, when they get enough books out there. And I know, uh, Sarah, in the traditional world, I know you publish traditionally, Sarah, um, and there are probably all kind of issues that come into play about whether and how you can write a series. And there are probably more restrictions because, you know, the publisher has to have so many copies sold and maybe they tell you they're going to have you write a series. And I don't know if you've probably talked to authors. I've heard about horror stories where, you know, authors had this idea for a series. They wrote the first two and then the publisher dropped them for the third mm-hmm. one. And now they're going to do what? They got to go f- find someone or publish it themselves, but they don't have the, the first two to support the third one. So it's kind of an awkward, that's why indie authors who use these funnels um, and write these series, you know, they get three or four or five books going. They might give that first one away free to get some interest and then they buy that second, third and fourth. But you may have more insight on the traditional side of writing a series, but I think it, uh, except for the ones that really hit it big and, uh, you know, I'm thinking about some we've had, you know, on our, podcast, uh, Craig Johnson in the Longmire series, he's on his 19th or 20th book and, you know, um, in his series, well, he's traditionally published, but that's not always a thing in traditional publishing, mm-hmm. is it? Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like all the authors I know personally who have written series are indie. Um, mm-hmm. they, they've published on their own, which I imagine it would be more difficult with traditional publishing to do a series, both from the publishers and because, you know, for them to make that investment up front, they might, um, need kind of more faith in your story. So it might be harder to get published if you're pitching it as a series. Um, and then also, like you were saying, you know, what if the first one doesn't sell well or the second one doesn't sell well? Are they going to, you know, put in the investment for another book? So I think it is probably easier if you have the control over it on your own and you're just able to publish by yourself. Um, and I, I think also another thing that I really took away from Paul's post that was interesting was the idea of it doesn't have to be a series in a traditional sense. Mm-hmm. So you can, it can be um, one book kind of follows the next, like a traditional sequel, but it could also be a different character in the same world, or it could be you're approaching something from a totally different point of view or writing a different person or whatever. So maybe that's a way too, where if you, if you don't make it as strictly like these are sequels to each other, you could publish one book traditionally. And then if you do have to try to move to a different publisher, if the story is a little bit more freestanding, maybe it's easier to do under those circumstances. Um, I haven't really tried that personally, but that might be a way of looking at it as well. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot, a lot to think about there, but there is value. I mean, look, there's value if you're going to be um, in the publishing world. If you like your characters and you like spending time with them, you know, why not consider you know, writing a series, mm-hmm. writing more than one book? Because, um, you know, we, we, we're gonna, we've had a number of authors on the podcast and we've got... Uh, Jennifer Ruff coming up the next one, indie author who publishes two or three books a year and she writes three or four series and that's how she finds a reader base, you know, um, and, and they're so competitive out there with all the different, you know, books that are being sold. The, the author that just has the one book out there 
it makes it harder for them to promote it if there's not other books that then when they read that book and say, I love this, what else have they written? You know, then it gets hard. So that's that's one plus in writing uh, a series. Um, the other is just sort of trying to figure out time management, you know, because people are going to expect it to come out, mm-hmm. you know. Well, they always say with uh, with indie publishing, especially, is that the more you write, the better. Um, like if you you got to make make kind of a point to say, okay, I'm gonna put out a book every you know every year or every ten months or whatever that might be. Um, and I think when it just because like I think a big part, part probably a big plus too of indie publishing is that you have so much control over the back end of it. So just with like search engine optimization and just be having your content out there like that, um, if you're the more you put out, the better. So if you're traditionally published, you know, and you can probably speak to this really well, Sarah, it's like, um, you, you can, you, you kind of have a team behind you up at either wherever you you're at and they kind of worry about all that stuff. Um, and they do their job and they kind of, they have different people do different things with, with indie publishing, you know, the author is responsible for all of that kind of thing. Um, but you know, you can be on your own timeline basically. So you just can put out books whenever you want to basically not saying everyone should do that. Um, but I think with series too, the big thing is that it's like a domino effect. Um, you know, you, you, if you like the characters in the first book, more than likely you're going to buy the next one. Um, and with the standalone books too, I think it's, it's kind of a marketing, uh, I mean, you just love it as a marketer or a PR person. You just really like that because it's really easy to say like, yeah, if you like these characters, you can see them again in this book, but also you can, you don't have to do that. Mm. Um, so it's kind of, uh, you know, both ways. And I was just thinking too, Sarah, when you're talking about, um, or just the conversation about traditionally published books and how hard it is to kind of write a series in that sense. It's, there's also, I was thinking about Sally Rooney who wrote, uh, normal people. She wrote that book and it ended up being like wildly successful as we probably all know, but she did write a follow-up essay to that. Um, so it was kind of like, I don't know if you guys read it, but it was sort of just like taking, um, those characters and just sort of sharing what ended up happening with them. Um, so it could have been, I don't know if she tried to pitch a sequel or like what happened, but she ended up selling the essay. So it's like, that's kind of something else that I guess traditionally published writers could think about doing as well if they just liked hanging out with their characters. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept overall. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing, too, is you can, it doesn't have to be a whole right. extra book that you write. Like, I've seen authors write, you know, a short story or a novella that's in the same world as something they've already published, mm-hmm. and even potentially give that away for free on their website, yeah. like sign up for my, my newsletter, and you get the short story, that sort that's of thing. That's great. Yeah, maybe I could write a, a, a couple of prequels that involve Jaeger's <laughs> former life or something. I, yeah, I think he's that. the character you <laughs> want to focus Gabby on more. <laughs> he's funny. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, his tagline under writing a sequel, maybe a series, is it's going to be easy, right? With a question mark. And uh, no, it's not easy. The decisions you have to make um, are important ones. Uh, but also, um, you've got to make decisions about arcs, too, because, you know, authors work hard to make sure that at least one character or more has some <laughs> arc in the story, right? They're in a place to start. They're in a different place when they finish. Um, so the question is, how do you do that, you know, when you're piecing different series together. Maybe you pick a different character and they have an arc, you know, and the one character in the first book is helping support them along the way. Or maybe there's some major twist in the setting that creates an arc, you know, for for the setting itself. Um, So those are things to think about as well. But 
It's worth, um, we, we appreciate uh, Paul submitting this uh, blog post. And, you know, writers, um, this is free for y'all to uh, <laughs> take advantage of. I, I mean, uh, if you're thinking about how to promote yourself as, as an author and you've got something worth saying from your experience out there, you know, go to our website uh, and submit uh, uh, a, a blog post for us to consider. And if uh, if we decide to publish it, to we're gonna yeah. we're gonna talk about it, <laughs> and we're not gonna not gonna throw your book across the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, as we wrap up today, let's uh, let's do our takeaways. Uh, so uh, I guess Hannah started with the book. So Sarah, you can start with the takeaways. Sure. Um, I feel like I learned a lot today. We had some really interesting discussions. I think. Um, some of my takeaways have to do with authenticity, like whether it's writing a setting that's um, authentic to your view of the book and the way that your characters would kind of exist in that world. And also with book talk, which I know I've been very <laughs> intimidated by, but I'm, I'm actually a little bit more excited to maybe dip a toe into that in the future after we talked about it today. It sounds like it's a really cool place to be authentic in terms of how you're promoting your work and to, to find your kind of original creative ways of doing that. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a lot that you can do as a writer to just sort of, uh, be your authentic self and that's what readers are looking for. Hannah. Yeah, I I agree. I feel like we, there was a lot of different topics covered today, but they all kind of bled together really nicely. Um, I really enjoyed talking more about setting just as a reader more so than a writer, just kind of listening to you guys talk more about that and, um, thinking about how, you know, setting is also like your, the place is a character in your mind. And I think that's something that'll be kind of cool for me to think about while I'm reading, um, more than I have in the past. So I really enjoyed that a lot. And I also really enjoyed the, um, tip about show and tell, um, because I think I'm kind of notoriously just like, don't tell me everything. I don't like, I don't like those long descriptions. I'm like, I want to just show me how, show me what's going on. I want to experience this too. Um, but you know, in thinking about it more and talking about it today, it makes a lot of sense that that it's like, I mean, when you're writing, you can't necessarily show everything because it's words. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta tell to, it's sort of that balance. So I think that's really, that was a really kind of an interesting thing for me. And just kind of thinking about that while listening to the folks we've had on the show today was really kind of a neat thing for me. Yeah. And and my takeaway uh, really echoes what you're saying, but it ties into one of the reasons that uh, I do this podcast. And and that is because, you know, you may know certain things or think you know certain things, but uh, hearing them over and over again, and talking about them helps, you know, implant them a little bit more in your brain. And, I, and, and and hearing and having this discussion, learning what other people are thinking, Paul's tip, uh, listening to, you know, the authors and their interviews, um, talking about setting, uh, that's going to be of value to me, you know, the next time I write. And I don't know whether book talk will be of value <laughs> to me because I don't know <laughs> whether I'll, I'll do it or not. But the takeaway is uh, consistent with what I've done in the past, which has always been, you know, try new things. What's the worst thing that can happen? Um, you know, you may fail at it. I, I can give that a try and see what happens. I think the question will be time management and figuring out, you know, what you do and what you pick uh, to do. I also think, um, you know, it's interesting how sometimes we pick out these topics and then the authors we have on the show tie in so well to the topics that we're discussing because each of those books, Kathy's books, John's books, and Suzanne's book all dealt you know, with settings, um, you know, that were interesting mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, brought life to their books. So uh, I guess kudos to us for figuring that out. <laughs> <back>. Yeah. 
<laughs> Let's pretend yeah. it's on purpose. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we, we, we confess once again, but, uh, no, it's been great. And, uh, I, I appreciate, uh, listeners, if you're still with us and hanging in there, thank you for listening. It, it is a long episode. As we said, uh, we are doing more in each episode and, uh, there's a button you can push to move things around and you can listen in spurts. So please do that and please engage with us. All right. Uh, one quick word and then we're going to tell you what's coming, uh, in our next episode. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, Sarah, we got some exciting stuff coming up in the next episode. And uh, with your lovely voice, how about sharing with our listeners what we've got? Yeah, so in episode 304, we're going to do a, a deep dive into the craft of writing and publishing. Um, we have an in-depth craft talk with USA Today best-selling author Jennifer Ruff about how she navigates the world of indie publishing and how she does it so well, with plenty of tips and recommendations for publishing independently and how to make money doing it. Plus, we feature her novel, The Groom Went Missing, a mystery thriller that is part of the Agent Victoria Heslin series. Um, we're going to have an in-depth discussion with five debut authors, Neil Carmichael, Amy Peacock, Emily Johnson, Tim Eichenbrenner, and Delphine McLennan about four topics important to writing and publishing one's first book. Um, they're going to talk about the steps they took in writing practices they adopted to write the first draft, what they did to take their book from first draft to final draft with the editing process, how they chose to publish their book and why they chose that publishing path, and what they wish they had known before they got started about the process of writing and publishing their first book. Um, that's going to be a great in-depth discussion. And we also have book recommendations by the hosts and by our community reading collaborators. And we're going to feature author Tammy Harrow in her novel, All the Salt in the Sea, which is a book about relationships that takes the reader from an Italian mountaintop to Paris to Switzerland and to St. Augustine, Florida. <laughs>